everyone, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, reads La Belle Sauvage of the Books of Dust, episode 5, chapters 12 through 14. I am one of your hosts, Eliana. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe. I am excited about these chapters. We're starting to get into the thick of it, but before we get into the thick of it, we want to remind you of our spoiler scope. We are going to be covering all three of the original trilogy, bits and pieces of the novellas, and of course, the entire book of La Belle Sauvage. So no The Secret Commonwealth discussion. We'll save that for our discussion at the very end of the episode. We'll let you know so you can log off. Yes, but we are covering the entirety of the first book of Dust. So, you know, if, if you're not ready to talk about that or hear about that, feel free to join us again later. But for now, we are going to talk about chapters 12, Alice Talks, 13, The Bologna Instrument, and 14, Lady with Monkey. I love these chapter titles. Lady with Monkey. <laughs> Lady with Monkey. I, I really like the naming. The nomenclature that he's giving these titles is really fun, especially because it's instructing us to escalate the tension in our mind. And that's exactly what these chapters are, because as soon as we get into the next chapter, we out of this, whew, it's a doozy. It gets the river goes very fast, my friends. It sweeps us upstream. So chapter 12, cool. Alice Talks, is great framework because Alice does talk very briefly and it's for like a page and a half and then it's over. <laughs> That's the Alice part of the chapter. But what she talks about has so much more bearing on this, right? What she talks about is very important and will come back in the story. So before we talk too much about it, I guess let's jump right into Alice Talks. No one came to the back door of the trout as a rule, which is why Malcolm is utterly surprised to find Egyptian man standing there. Chestnut-skinned, lean, calm, with an autumnal-colored cat demon. It's Coram Van Texel. He speaks to Malcolm's mom, and Sofinex speaks to her demon. Yes. So we get to see him again once more in this book, which is exciting. And I, I do think it's interesting that I think this might be the first time we've really heard this description of Farder mm -hmm. Cora, maybe earlier on in the book, but that he is described as brown-skinned, yet in, in both visual adaptations of him, right? In the movie and in the show, he's the one who like ends up being adapted as white in both of those. I, I just think it's interesting. But well, we didn't get it until La Belle Sauvage. Yeah, and you know, when they were casting for the show, if you recall, that's actually why I was surprised to see who they cast, because I was like, oh, oh, they're going to have him play Farter Cor- Oh, no, Jared they're going to- Yeah, yeah. I, I was very surprised. I thought it was going to be the opposite. And I love the way that James Cosmo has portrayed Farter Corum. Don't get yeah. me wrong. I think he's done a great grandfatherly thing. But I really was interested in- This isn't the only- physical change in this book actually we'll, we'll talk about mrs Coulter in a bit so i think it was fun no pun intended for philip to kind of flesh some of this out and i think that uh i know that the people that worked on the show especially in casting and in executive producing all have read the books of dust right so they are caught up too so i know that while this didn't make it to the screen they did give a lot of diversity to the Egyptians, which I found yeah. really comforting, really communal, right? Like, the sense of community was very strong. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I just thought it was interesting because they, like, chose to adapt other characters in that way, but 
not yeah. Carter Quorum. So it yeah. was. Uh, it's interesting. And speaking of their casting, uh, just a quick aside of you know, I'm I'm finally watching Downton Abbey like a decade after I guess it started, and and Mr. Carson, who was cast as John Fa in the movie, oh, is in yeah. it. So he's oh. he's a prominent character, and I look at him sometimes. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. It's I John Fa. I love that. Yeah. He's got intense eyebrows. <laughs> but yeah, so Farter Quorum here, he's been charged with bringing La Belle Sauvage back for Lord Asriel, but he's also come back with a couple of upgrades. The boat has been repainted green, its name is now in red, with an outline in cream, and brackets were installed on the gunwales, which means it's better to hold the oars, and Quorum says that they also installed a tarpaulin. A special weatherproof silk to keep him dry and safe if ever needed. That will stay up thanks to these brackets and oars. Then Quorum goes on and he's really giving a sales pitch here even though it's already Malcolm. Saying that he knows that he's been meeting with a certain Hannah Ralph. That Malcolm is allowed to tell her about this meeting and if he needs to reassure Hannah, Malcolm can just say, Oakley Street, nothing more, and that she will understand. Hmm. I have a couple thoughts here. And first, I want to come back to tarpaulin. Eliana, I'm going to blow your mind. You know what it is? It's what we call a tarp. A tarp? That's literally what this is. It's a silk covering. And this is coal silk, right? So it's a little different than the plastic tarps that you or I might use. My cheap ass tarps. Cheap (laughs) shit, right? Like plastic bullshit. That looks like it's been duct taped. No, uh, this is different, it but it's a similar idea, right? So tarpaulin silk covering is, okay, first of all, this is one of the most life-saving things that happens to the boat, right, as we go through mm-hmm. this story. This keeps Alice, Lyra, and Malcolm somehow warmer and safer than they would have been without it. And in the mid-19th century, tarpaulin was actually not abbreviated as tarp. It was abbreviated as pollen. Uh, hysterically, Hmm. and it was used as cloth Hmm. or covering. It originated, though, as a mix of tar and polling, and basically that's a tarred canvas that they would pall over covered ships, and the sailors would also tar their clothes in similar manner. So it would stop it from being porous, right, when water came down on it. It was weatherproofing. It was waterproofing. Sailors were often called jack tars, actually, Hmm. because of this strategy. It's commonly referred to Uh, of the seamen of the merchant or royal navy then, particularly during the British Empire. So I thought that was very interesting. I I didn't know the origins, the etymology between tarp, what it actually came from, or jacktars, that sailors were called jacktars. But knowing all this, it doesn't feel... uh, The obvious thing I've been thinking is like, Asriel's not the kind of guy to find a poor kid and be like, I'm going to upgrade your boat out of the goodness of my heart. Maybe that's just my read of Asriel. Okay, it could be biased, but he's just not the kind of guy that's like, I have the time to do this, so I'm going to do it for funsies. I think, like, there's also the obvious bond of Malcolm caring about Lyra, right? Mm -hmm. And that Asriel knew he was saying goodbye. This kid was helping him say goodbye to his daughter for what he thinks is the last time he'll see her because he's, you know, being chased. But he saw the genuine care in Malcolm's eyes and knew Lyra was in danger. So 
It's kind of like Asriel did a what-if scenario while he rode that boat away and was thinking, wow, this boat would never save Lyra's life in the condition it's in right now. I think it's obvious that Asriel was like, Lyra might have to be in this boat at some point. Hmm. I think there is a self-serving aspect there. I think we're supposed to read it as Lord Asriel. Like, I don't know if this book and some of this is supposed to be like Lord Asriel rehabilitation, right? But I refuse like, of his to image, let it be. I refuse to let it be rehab. I'm I, gonna question I everything. everything. I agree, but I I just think like I don't know if that's how we're supposed to read it. Of like, look, Lord Azriel's a stand up guy. He not only borrowed the boat and returned it, he made it better. But but as you said, like it's hard to believe that of Lord Azriel sacrificed the poor kid and yeah. kill him and tear his demon apart. You mean you know. Lord Asriel, orphan killer? Oh, yeah, Lord Asriel, orphan killer Balakwa. Yeah, Asriel, orphan killer Balakwa, or Asriel, self-serving Balakwa, or Asriel, ruined the entire environment ecosystem of the entire fucking world's Balakwa. That's true. Yeah. Asriel has a cool demon Balakwa. Oh. Yeah. I mean, that one was kind of nice, sorry. But th- that one's from the perspective of Mrs. Coulter, you know? And um, <laughs> But, yeah. I think, I think, as you said, there's definitely a little bit of a uh, just-in-case element going on there. And I mean, he's close with Egyptians, right? So he might have been aware of, like, yeah, something could be coming along. Obviously, yeah. he sent the boat through Fardacorum, so. Mm-hmm. For now, they get to more serious business, and Fardacorum asks if Malcolm has met a man named Gerard Bonneville. Before Malcolm can answer, his mom is calling for him in the trout, and Corm Van Texel leaves him with two warnings. One, don't be fooled by the weather improving over the next two days. It's going to flood like no one alive has ever seen. Be ready. And then be wary of the man with the hyena demon. Don't go near him. And in this moment, I think Farger Corm's taking on this role as a sort of like angelic messenger to the prophet Malcolm, warning everyone of the flood. And that's what Malcolm's going to do throughout these next few chapters. Yeah, it increasingly becomes Book of Prophets, not just Book of Dust. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Malcolm asks Coram if he's Egyptian, and if all Egyptians are against the CCD. He answers, yes, he is, but not all Egyptians are against the CCD. Some are, some aren't. He tells him, again, stay away from the man with the hyena, and watch out for that flood, shakes his hand, and off he goes. A good... Hashtag not all Egyptians. And it is a good reminder that there is very much a diaspora amongst Egyptians, that there are many different tribes, right? As we saw at um, the roping, that's that's a time that many of them come together and they're not all aligned, as Corm says. And it's kind of reminiscent of the witches, how they're portrayed in the books, of having many different factions. Yeah, the only loyalty that they rely on, right? Like the witches are the air and the earth and the Egyptians are the water. That's oh, the wow. god they pray to. Inside... Malcolm's mom asks what was that all about and tells him get on and serve dinner. It's the busiest Saturday they've had in a while and Malcolm is picking up a good amount of tips as well as tips that are information. He listens in on some men discussing the river board and the rain stopping. One man mentions the weather office has philosophical instruments to weigh the weather with and that they say they have fine weather coming for them. Most of the men agree they're looking at a whole month of sunshine. And one dissenter mentions, well, my granny keeps saying. They ask Malcolm to grab them another round of badger. 
I love this because it's so science versus faith, right? It feels important. Uh, This man's grandmother, who's alive and old, thinks it's going to rain. Judging on her life experiences and on that feeling of faith or just knowing or seeing patterns over time. Then you have everyone else who's saying, ah, but the philosophical devices the news reports on measure weather that there's going to be sun. The next chapter actually opens up with a little more framework on philosophical machines, so I'll save it for then. But it's an interesting argument of who's right here, the woman who's lived it or the person who's predicting it. Yeah, it is, especially when there's, I think, a lot of emphasis, right, against religion in these books and and the emphasis on science and believing that. So it's an interesting, I think, tension. Mm -hmm. But also, I just kind of low-key think Philip Pullman hates, like, meteorologists or weathermen. Oh, he's definitely unkind, right, during this. He's not, not, like, flattering. Not at all. Not one bit. Later, Asta in Robin form says that Coram Van Texel... Knows more than the men in the bar, though, which is probably true. <laughs> uh, Malcolm agrees, but he knows they would never have listened to them. And instead, they sift through the dictionary, trying to understand the migraine auras that Hannah Ralph had mentioned. She pronounced it migraine. His mom pronounced it migraine. <laughs> and, you know, throw it- <laughs> I say migraine. Yeah, I say migraine. I've never... Hold on. I've never heard. What's the Hannah Ralph pronunciation, then? Migraine. I don't migraine. know. Migraine. I, know, I don't yeah. know. I like migraine. Yeah, same. Migraine, it's mine, not yours. <laughs> your grain. It's uh, not like because the otherwise the opposite of a me grain, right? It's not a your grain. It's a two grain. It's a you grain. Yeah. Oh, is that a country? <laughs> it does kind of sound like that. But that's not. This isn't what Malcolm wants to understand, right? It was the aura, which turns out he also, anyways. <laughs> misremembers that um and we have a quote here robin asta appeared at the page from his forearm and read aurora a luminous celestial phenomenon of unbearable character seen in the polar regions with a tremulous motion and streamers of light sometimes known as the northern lights you sure that was the word it sounded more like lyra two syllables no this is it said malcolm firmly Aurora! It's the Northern Lights in my head! Okay, so I learned recently I don't know how to count, according to Eliana, about what syllables are. I was thinking that from the the first book when Lyra says the roarer, it was the aurora, three syllables, but no, it's two syllables. This is a callback, right? It has to be a callback to roarer. I think this is Pullman playing with the roarer, which maybe it's just my favorite part. Of the entire book, but... But what about the bung? Oh, the bung is up there. Well, down there, I guess now. But, Mm -hmm. well, so (laughs) Malcolm decides whatever causes the northern lights also probably causes his aura. And he's thrilled at the idea of his brain being connected to them. Okay, maybe we'll talk about this more in the discussion, but I have speculation here because this feels really big. There's no payoff for it in this book. There's a few weird things about Malcolm that do get some small payoff in this book, but this doesn't get any payoff, and it doesn't get payoff, no spoilers, in The Secret Commonwealth, really, either. I thought there would be some sort of payoff, so I think this has to have payoff in the last book of Dust. We'll talk in our Dust discussion. 
It probably does. It's probably a third book thing. And I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on like, so the proper term, the term he is actually looking for, right? He does get it wrong. Ass is right. It is aura. But I'm still trying to figure out because she's like, it sounded more like Lyra, two syllables. And I'm just trying to like figure out how aura and Lyra like sound the same other than the ra at the end. I guess the ra, um, I mean, well, here's a thought though. I mean, Aurora does mean dawn, right? Or goddess of the dawn or light. So morning light, dawn. Um, I mean, Asta could have been being deep. I mean, maybe. Because yeah. I'm just here trying to like say the words over and over again. Like, how do I make them sound the same? <laughs> if Lyra is a constellation, right? Taken from the lyre of Orpheus. <laughs> just discussion. Uh, then, you know, the goddess of the dawn kind of sounds like her, too. It reminds me of Eve. Interesting. Yeah. Well, speaking of the dawn, when Malcolm wakes, he wants to look at his boat, but he has to help his dad clean up the bar first. Sigh. Um. But something is off today. Alice seems distracted. Not her usual sullen self. She keeps looking around, clearing her throat as if to speak. Mood, Ben there. <laughs> I know. Alice is a mood. She is. Malcolm mostly ignores it, but finally later she speaks up, asking if he knows the nuns and about the child they're taking care of, saying that there's a man. And trailing off. Also Not a mood. mysterious at all. There's a man, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> They're interrupted by Mrs. Polstead's return And Alice says she'll ask him later Malcolm goes off to continue his duties Finding his dad and asking his opinion On the flood talk His father's like, those men in the bar don't know anything And then he changes the subject Back to LaBelle Sauvage's return Malcolm explains how he loaned it to Azriel And how the Egyptian brought it back And then about the peculiar things That the Egyptian said about the flood Steering that conversation right back Good job, Malcolm Mr. Polstead's like, the Egyptians are water people, so it's interesting to think, but I don't want you spending time worrying about it, Malcolm. And Malcolm's like, the man was serious, Dad. We might want to think about respecting what he said. His dad kind of laughs, and he's like, well, what do you think? Can we get into La Belle Sauvage and fit with you? Lol, foreshadowing. <laughs> no, but yeah. a baby and a teen girl could fit. Yeah, it is kind of adorable that his dad asks, though. <laughs> That's like something I don't know. I think my parents would ask me, like, "Oh, can I come to you?" And I'd be like, "No." It does <laughs> feel not. very organic, like a family thing. Yeah, like parents breaking into your bed and bugging you when you're a kid. Yeah, yeah. Malcolm mentions that you know what? Maybe your dad, you should mend the punt. It's a flat-bottomed boat with a square-cut bow, so they must have another boat attached to their dock. Uh, they're very associated with the River Tam. And it's like a big thing. People usually have parties with them, and it's a whole thing, I guess. Oh, fun. Yeah, so they, they should have a nice punt. punt. Yes. Yeah, they can have parties, expand, you know, outdoor dining. Anyways, Malcolm says that mother should move her flower up from the cellar. That's all. He's just saying, you know, you don't have to believe me, but please take some steps. His just mom enters case. the bar, so he uses this opportunity to scurry back to ask Alice to continue talking about the man. She doesn't know if she should tell him anything, but she goes on anyway. 
Turns out it's, yes, the same man that we are all thinking about and have all been talking about this whole time. The man with the hyena demon. She tells him that she spoke to him a bit the night before and blushes. Red flags. The man had told her he was the father of the child at the Priory and went on talking about the Priory and the nuns to her asking about the security at the Priory. More red flags. Mal is taken aback as he knows that Asriel is Lyra's father. Yeah, Alice's demon had tried to talk to the hyena, but the hyena wouldn't speak back, which I think is really great when we look at Mrs. Coulter later, Mm. right? And that yeah. Uh, Asta doesn't go to talk to the monkey. So great to look at this in a three-chapter run just for that alone. Yeah. Malcolm didn't know what else to ask. It was clearly important to find out whatever he could, but his imagination was limited at this point. He couldn't conceive what a grown man would want with a solitary girl at night, or what could pass between them. Nor could he understand why she was blushing. <clears throat> I'm staring into the camera. I wish you all could see us staring at the camera. I do appreciate, to keep it positive, I love how Pullman stays in Malcolm's mind, right? That that for him, this is probably remembering how he was as a kid and fancying out the details a bit to fit the story. But I appreciate his consistency with, like, the aversion to sexual and not understanding things because, you know, like, you're dumb when you're a kid and adults being dumb to you, and it's all these themes of innocence, right? Like in this chapter, where people are refusing to tell him why he needs to do things, just constantly telling him to do them. Stay away from Gerard, don't talk about this, don't tell people this. Growing up is all of secrets and betrayal, and Malcolm is on the cusp of that betrayal, quite obviously. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's true about the betrayal. (laughs) Betrayal. <laughs> well, Malcolm warns Alice about what Corbin Van Texel told him. Stay away from the man with the hyena. But Malcolm's also like, mm, he doesn't say stay away for, per se. He's just like, you gotta tell me and keep me posted if you talk to him again. And he explains to her that everyone keeps acting like this around the man. So he must be bad. And that they act like he had been in prison or something. And she says, the man didn't worry her, though. He asks again if she'll tell him if she hears anything, and she laughs at how worried he is for this baby. He says, she's exactly that, a baby. And she's like, well, how are you going to keep the baby safe, you know, all alone from this big bad man? And then it's like, but you know what, fine, I'll give in to your request of keeping you updated. And I think this exchange, you know, as... As a much older person now, <laughs> this exchange <laughs> really reveals to you how young I think Malcolm is at this point in immature, especially when you contrast how he deals with the information that he got from Coram. And knowing that Alice has been talking to Gerard, and you contrast that with like how Hannah reacts later on. Because Malcolm tells Alice to just tell him whatever Gerard says to her. As though he thinks he's kind of making Alice a spy in the way that Malcolm is kind of being a child spy right now. But he's not really thinking in regards to her well-being or safety. Not not because he's necessarily malicious, but because he just doesn't really think about that and ha- have the ability to. Especially knowing that Quorum was like, y'all should stay away from him. Whereas an adult would tell Alice, you need to stay away from that man. This is con- deeply concerning whatever's going on here, and it's exactly what Hannah tells Malcolm to do. Stay away from Gerard. Yeah, and it's unfortunately uh, 
Alice is met with the consequences of that later on. Which shouldn't be consequences, it's bullshit. It's, it's, bullshit. A, it's a shame it's that like there weren't adults, you know, yeah. around who cared enough about her to be like... Yeah, they just found her like this sullen girl that wasn't particularly pretty and not particularly too ugly and she did work fine enough and so they paid her enough to live and off she went guess- and... Malcolm's parents could have done more. But that's the thing Malcolm's is like... parents could have done more, you know? They could have done more in a lot of facets. And I feel bad because obviously they couldn't have in some manners, right? Like they were just trying to... I mean, the flood is a metaphor for them in a lot of ways too. They're just trying to keep their yeah. heads above as, you know, low income in owners and all this in a lower area, right? Like it's obvious this isn't being... There's not just stuff being handed out and... Life is harder for them than it is for Eric and his dad, cop dad, you know, court dad. But, like, I don't know, they they could have cared a little more, you know, when Malcolm was like, so I learned this thing today, mom and pop. And I'm not saying they didn't care. They cared, but they could have just, like, shown a little interest. It's very obvious as we get into the Hannah and Malcolm interactions that she's the Miss Honey of the situation, right? Yeah. And his parents, like, aren't neglectful of him, yeah. right? But... As you said, they could have shown more interest in in Alice, especially because we see that they exchange a look of concern in a bit when they hear about this. But yeah, but it's not we'll their there. business. <sighs> well, well. Later, he inspects the improvements that were made to the boat. Malcolm even tries out the coal silk roofing. He thinks of taking the Belle Sauvage on the water, but decides against it as the rivers are rushing pretty quickly today. And he was like. Hmm. Is it going to rain again? I don't know. The inn's dead. The Polsteads even have time to make dinner and hang out. They let Frank, the assistant barman, take over. Malcolm daydreams to the sizzle of fried potatoes. Me too. Until he's interrupted by his dad, asking what he and Alice had been speaking about. His parents found it pretty odd to see the two getting along. It's a rare sight. Malcolm admits they were talking about the man with the hyena demon. Gerard Bonvie had been asking Alice about baby Lyra and the nuns in Jericho. Malcolm kind of tries to stand up for the man, saying, Hey, he he was nice, and Alice likes him, but his father warns him of the man's nature, that he heard he had a history for violence, specifically with women. It seems there's kind of like a changing, evolving backstory for Gerard. Right, Most people thought originally, as we hear from Hannah, uh, it, it was a violence offense. But Mr. Polstead and Nugent get it right in these couple chapters. Bonvie is not just physically violent, but sexually violent. And the differentiation being made is not just coincidental, especially because we just learned that he's speaking to Alice and kind of exploiting her vulnerabilities. Hannah will tell us more during the Bologna instrument, though. I forgot that his name's pronounced Bonvie. I will like never MLS forget, and I will flaunt in Paris. it all the time. <laughs> Gerard Bonvie. Bonvie. Gerard Bonvie. It's so Emily pretentious. in Paris. Listen, when I heard Pullman say this in his event interview, when he uh, said Gerard Bonvie, I was like, oh, so pretentious. I love it so much. I'm going to say it. I say, like, you will catch me saying it today as we go along I mean you chapters. are saying it right now and then I was like oh shit I've been doing it wrong <laughs> I wasn't gonna say anything but I was thinking I was like I wish she was saying Gerard Bonvie you know well you're just gonna have to have all the class in this podcast Chloe and I will be talk about an arc truly and I will be the plebeian <laughs> pronunciation I guess 
Malcolm's dad says that the demon was the worst of it, though, when it came to Gerard Bonville. <laughs> and Malcolm argues, you can't control what your demon settles as, though. And his mother's demon, a badger, speaks, and it's a very rare occurrence. So he's like, oh, I gotta pay attention. He says that, you know what, Malcolm, you would be surprised. You can't choose, but you can definitely, usually on accident, pause, <laughs> help what your demon settles as. And then Malcolm tries to ask more, but the demon pulls a classic mom move and says, you know what, just eat your supper and then you'll find out. And Mrs. Polstead changes the conversation to worrying about her mother and checking in on her. And Malcolm asks if his grandmother has enough sandbags for the flood. A la Corm Van Texel's advice. And Malcolm's dad has an aside then to Malcolm's mom, whose name is Brenda, turns out, asking if she had seen the Egyptian man and if they should be trusting him. Hell yeah, Brenda. I was so hyped that she gets a name. Yeah, dude, she gets a name. I don't know if Malcolm's dad even gets a name. He probably does, and we're just fake fans. Has fake he fan earned girls. one? I don't know. I don't know, Malcolm's dad. Reg. Reg. Oh, that Reg You weren't going to guess that. You weren't going to guess fucking Reg. I wasn't going to guess Reg. You don't know that I wasn't going to guess it. I could have gotten to it eventually. Reg Cattermole. It's like not, it's not at the top of my list ever. It's honestly the most Polstead name, though. Reg Polstead. Reg, Brenda, and Malcolm are wishing you a Merry Christmas. <sighs> Chloe stares off into the camera. <laughs> Season's greetings. So his parents ask Malcolm if he's warned the nuns about this whole flood shindig. And Malcolm's like, yeah, they, I'm going to tell them later. And they can come to the inn with Lyra if they need to. We have the space. And they're like, no, Malcolm, we do not have that space. We are poor, first of all. And Mrs. Polstead's like, we're not holy enough for them. Malcolm's like, they bring the holiness with them, Mom. Don't worry. <laughs> Adorable. Children. Precious. Gotta enjoy the stuff he says now. Malcolm's dad asks, what's for pudding? Stewed apple. Yum. While Malcolm dries dishes and then says goodnight. Upstairs, Malcolm studies the symbols of the alethiometer with Asta reminding him, be systematic about it. He writes down the names and meanings of as many symbols as he can see, like the skull and the hourglass, but he leaves a handful that he knows he has to ask Hannah for help with. He's unable to sleep, so they go peer into the night through the guest bedrooms, where the windows face the river. They can just make out the priory from there, and Malcolm tells Asta to transform into an owl to better see. Asta notes a window's open, and Malcolm's like, shit, I'll have to tell Mr. Tabhouse. They wonder if the nuns have ever dealt with the flood before, and they plan to ask Sister Fenella about it, thinking if it had happened, there'd probably be stained glass of it. Malcolm starts to wonder what symbols would symbolize a flood on the alethiometer, noting to ask Dr. Ralph and that he needs to warn her about the flood, too. He thinks about those gorgeous books and how he'd have to save all of them. That is my boy right there. <laughs> That's what he's worried about. He's like, fuck the people. He's like, Hannah will be fine. She can float, but those <laughs> books. But those books. Yeah, fuck Hannah. <laughs> That's his future, man, which, uh, just like Hannah, I mean, he's faced with it. That's his future going up in water, and Hannah's yep. sitting here like, my future's going up in water, quite literally. <laughs> That's about to happen. Yep. But first, amidst Malcolm's heroic fantasies <laughs> of saving the books, something in the distance moves and Asta freaks out. They argue, like, maybe it's Mr. Taphouse with the tools, but unfortunately, it is not. 
Malcolm feels a dread in his stomach because it's Gerard Bonneville carrying his demon, intent to break in and kidnap Lyra. They can't understand why Gerard wants a baby or to hurt it, and Malcolm thinks that maybe he should tell his father about it. He says that even Alice was afraid of him and Asta thinks he's definitely a murderer. Interesting that in this series, murderers are inherently <laughs> bad suddenly, right? The OT3, the original trilogy, said they were good. We love murderers in one decade, but not in 1986. They're, they're, they're different, you know? Malcolm's like, murderers are bad. Lyra's like, hot? <laughs> Hey, maybe you should have bon V is hot. Maybe this is the problem when you have a heterosexual boy <laughs> as your lead. Yeah, that could be it. Where's all the angles? Okay, I'd like all the angles of Gerard Bonville. But it could be also maybe because Gerard Bonneville, right? He doesn't feel bearish enough. That's the problem. Mm. Lyra looks at him and would probably see like, he doesn't seem enough like a polar bear. No, I don't too see slimy, him eating a Claw Dyke bar. Yeah. Or in the Coca-Cola commercial. Well, we get this line. The shadow appeared around the side of the building again, and then the man staggered, and the burden on his shoulders seemed to squirm away and fall to the ground. And then they heard a hideous, high-pitched cry of laughter. The man and the demon seemed to be spinning around in a mad dance. That uncanny laughter tormented Malcolm's ears. It sounded like a high hiccuping yell of agony. He's hitting her, whispered Asta, unable to believe it. This is sad. I uh, I feel super sad for the hyena, and I am a noted monkey sympathizer. I think that's happened a few times, as we all know by now. Monkey apologist. I am a monkey apologist. <laughs> it's just the way he's written. It's not his fault. But, like, also, great use of that haunting laughter that comes back throughout mm-hmm. the story. That la- When I read this book, I was gripped. Like, every time that haunting, high-pitched laughter was happening and echoing, I was like, holy shit. <sighs> the language here about Gerard's dancing, right, that he seemed to be doing a mad dance with his demon, reminds me of Tulio, actually, from oh. The Subtle Knife. Tulio's wild dancing with the knife with Isahetra. That's interesting. And I can see, you know, there's there's something similar there. They both kind of... Are a little off right after their <laughs> big fights. A bit. Just a bit. But this part about the hyena, as you said, it is pretty heart wrenching, right? Like, and that sort of duality of it's a sound of happiness, right? It's described as a laughter, but we know that it's actually pain. Mm-hmm. And it, it really, I think, plays up that hidden nature thing uh, that's going on with the hyena and showing that sort of apt choice for bond. And, and the hiding and the masking of the emotions. You almost you almost converted me, Chloe, but I caught myself. By episode end, you'll be a bon vie. Uh, no, it is though, bon and, and, and this me. is like bon me. Well, like I said, bon me. No, bon, uh, bon me? I would need a bon me. Reminds you of Ricky Martin. What's that song? Bon bon, shake your bon bon. Oh yeah. If we're going to talk about the 90s here. Uh, different 90s, different world. That's true. So... This whole situation, in contrast to the hyena who's cackling in fear and pain and madness uh, with Bon V, it, it terrifies Malcolm and Asta. Asta has turned into a cat and is in Malcolm's arms, and they're shaking together in the horror of the act. 
Later along the way at the Priory, the sisters have realized an intruder is coming, and a commanding call is made by Benedicta amidst the agonizing laughter of the man and hyena. The two run off, and he's beating his demon along the way, thrashing her with a stick. Malcolm can see the nuns flinch as they watch what's happening. So another sad thing that happens here with the hyena is that the man runs mm. because the hyena has started sort of running away first, limping away as the window has opened. And Malcolm notes that part of it is the man is chasing the hyena because it, it's pulling him, right? The mm -hmm. the pain from when a demon is far away. And, and though he's also beating the hyena at the same time and being pulled, it's like the hyena is pulling him to save him from being caught by the nuns, mm. despite everything that's going on. So... Not to sidetrack what you're saying, but I kind of read all of this, and this is just from the reread, that he is severed from his demon. Because of his experimentation in the Rusikov particles and the way he's able to treat people and his demon in beating his demon and hurting his demon, to me, says that he is separated from his demon and doesn't feel the pain that you'd normally feel from a demon. So I thought I, so. I took it that way, personally, and that he was trying to catch the hyena before it ran off. Oh, so I thought that, like, and again, this is a reread, and I haven't, this is my first time rereading this book, right, everyone? Right. So I might be misremembering things. And I thought, when I was reading this, is like, I thought he was kind of severed from his demon, so I thought it was interesting that Malcolm said that, but obviously he doesn't know. Yeah, he's definitely projecting right. some of this, because, I mean, it's, again, it's along the way. Like, the Priory's not just, like, next door, it's half a mile down you know like you're yeah. watching from many many feet away uh but i i don't know that was my read on gerard bonvi and like just because i don't know how you could actively hurt your soul like that especially with some of the speculation on mrs coulter the behavior she has towards the golden monkey and just especially the idea of like the experimenting on yourself and being so far into your vengeance and into your fucking goal of like blood path of power that these two are so obviously hellbent on. It feels very similar. And there's a lot of uh, comparison going on with their demons in these couple chapters. Yeah. I think if he isn't severed, I think there's something almost then more worse, sinister yeah. and dark. Yeah. Then of that sort of self-flagellation then of beating your own demon well both malcolm and asa discuss the nuns watching the man as well and think how they likely won't be able to share this discussion with them the man and his tormented demon had gone and there was nothing now but the darkness and the sound of the river so after another minute malcolm and asta crept out of that room in the dark and felt their way to bed when they slept, he dreamed of wild dogs, a pack of them, fifty or sixty, all kinds, racing through the streets of a deserted city, and as he watched them, he felt a strange, wild exhilaration that was still there when he woke up in the morning. I have a couple thoughts on this. This, this feels, this dream is recurring, right? Like, we get more wild mm -hmm. dog dreams as we go along for Malcolm, and he ends up embodying them later on in the final confrontation with Gerard Bonvie. Most of these specifically revolve around Gerard, and they're obviously linked to the hyena, right? Because the hyena is one of the more commonly known wild canines, like the dole, the wolf, coyote, or like a fennec fox. Malcolm seems to manifest his rages and his frustrations, as well as his inability to react because he's a child, right? Like, he has no agency. Uh, and, and 
he seems to kind of manifest that in dealing with this Bon V situation into this dream of wild, angry dogs, so much that later, during his confrontation with him at the end of the story, he feels like he can hear them and feel them, like they're there presently in his conscious in present day. This strikes me more and more as we get into the Bologna instrument and hear Hannah's worries and frustrations at Malcolm's involvement in Oakley Street business and that he doesn't have a strong support system to tell these secrets to or any support system, right? He's an only child Mm -hmm. with three adolescent mini cops as best friends and his parents that love him dearly, like we said, but they're really busy trying to scrape by. And then he has Alice. Right, which at the time, right now, as we say this, isn't much later. It's everything. She's one of the best friends the world could ever ask for. Uh, and Hannah's kind of that first adult to make Malcolm like that, that bold part of the day. Give him the time of day. Give him what his brain needs. The first adult to just even uh, say, instead of saying, Malcolm, listen to us and you'll be fine. She's saying, Malcolm, are you okay? I think that's something really special and important, especially because as we look at this wild dog dream manifestation, it's kind of symbolic of puberty in a way, right? Like this is him facing Hmm. his puberty and his growing up. If the original trilogy was a coming of age story for them, it's been a coming of age story in La Belle Sauvage for him as well. Yeah, it definitely has. He's had an an eventful, I think, year so far (laughs) year that he's turned 10. And I think it's interesting to think of the dogs as, as expressing puberty. I think there's a lot that can be read into that, but Boys get ragey, right? Like, that's what I think. Yeah. They get ragey. That, I mean, there's a lot of feelings to be had during puberty. I don't know that I had wild dog dreams, but I definitely, <laughs> I, I always have weird dreams. Yeah, that's true. But next we have chapter 13, the Bologna instrument. The fried Bologna sandwich. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so the framework of the Bologna instrument, it, it's interesting to me because it's referencing philosophical instruments are fallible and that it's up to the people who interpret and read them and how the interpretation moves to the people and how it's used. This is first brought up with the philosophical instruments of the weather office, but I do think we see it brought up later in the chapter with regards to what Hannah Ralph reads on her lithiometer right as she accepts the job. So first we get a passage. The philosophical instruments of the weather office, so highly regarded by some of the drinkers at the trout and so disdained by others, did what they always did and told their attendants exactly what they could have seen by looking at the sky. The weather was fair and cold. The sky was clear day and night. There was no prospect of rain. Further out in the Atlantic than they could perceive, there might have been all sorts of bad weather. There might have been the mother of all depressions, and it might have been heading towards Britain to bring about just the sort of inundation that Coram Van Texel predicted to Malcolm, but there were no instruments that could see it except perhaps an alethiometer. Wow, there's a lot in there. Um, First off, I love the idea that like they're straight up, Pullman's straight up narrating saying like, you can't guess it. it. No instrument can guess this except the alethiometer. Even all these philosophical instruments... They're just telling you exactly what you can see with your own eyeballs if you go look at the sky, which is true. Like, as someone with rheumatoid arthritis, I can tell you that my body knows exactly what the weather's going to do all the time. I can tell you if it's going to snow. I can tell you if it's going to rain. I know. I am all-knowing. It's like my boobs can tell when it's already Yeah. Raining. Yeah, absolutely. I am Karen. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but that's right. Her name was Karen. <laughs> yep. Gretchen was the other one, which I also relate yeah. to, to be honest. I love all of them. I, I 
I find this interesting in general from also a broadcasting background that like the way news and TV and weather actually works, it's not always meteorologists reading the weather. Like you might have somebody reading the weather and people might title themselves that, but people lie. This may shock you. Like those who report on the philosophical weather reading devices don't always read from them themselves on TV live or on radio live. In the news, you get given stories, usually from a reliable source, right? Like in the U.S., AP is common. Uh, Actually, it's common for like all news to report on. So when your primary source of news is the AP, that's one thing. But if your primary source of news, instead of AP, is coming from the magisterium, dot, 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 Holman gives them an out in this passage saying, no one could have guessed this with weather tools, but it does make you think like, If the magisterium's already seeped into your lives, what could they gain from continuing a narrative that a flood isn't going to happen? Who would the flood affect the most out of their people? Yeah, I mean, it's not like we've ever seen anything in real life where a larger governmental body has lied about the impact that some sort of disaster could be causing. Is this? This reminds me of the 2000s so hard. (laughs) there's also something i don't know feels like i've been living this the past almost year but i don't know my god could be could be in my head yeah no i didn't really think about it but like even just comparing it to like katrina i'm just like oh yeah Hmm. that's that's definitely one of them absolutely and i don't i don't think it's implied like that like it's not implied obviously they knew and they would i thought about it could be but but I'm just saying, we don't know for sure. No one knows. It's all that. And again, like you, what you were saying, this is a little off topic, but regarding people telling you the weather, you know, I love watching those videos of, or like when the green screen stops working and then you find out that the weather person telling you the weather is just really gesturing over. They're just gesturing. And yeah. someone else is making it seem like they're really telling you real shit. <laughs> but they're just, they're just good at moving their body, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, I've done it before, and it's actually really fun. But it is a lot of bullshit. I'm sure. I uh, I used to do TV news at school, and I was going into broadcasting, and like we were the best of the country, all that jazz, and like I, I worked my way up to weather. I had to do sports for a year, oh, wow. and you know me, oh, sports. You know me, Eliana. I just want you to know that I. I, I had a seminar teacher, like a, a study hour, study hall teacher, that said to me one day, he said, Chloe, you look real good reading that news up there. You sound good. You sound like you understand what you're saying. He's like, but I absolutely know you have no clue what you're doing. And I'm like, yep, absolutely. Absolutely, Mr. K. <laughs> Sounds like you were a good sport, Chloe. I was a good sport. And you know who else is a good sport? The people of Oxford during all of this flood talk, because... They're just going on like nothing's wrong, but the level of the river is rising more and more, and it's not showing signs of going down, and even a dog fell into the river and died. It was whirled away into the waters. It's the most awful thing. It's the worst. It's horrible. (sighs) Hannah, on the other hand, though... She's sitting pretty, living at home, sitting at home, working on her project to learn more about the hourglass emoji (laughs) and its depth and symbolism. She's like, but you know what's novel? If we put a skull on top of the hourglass emoji, two emojis, (laughs) the emoji 
spiny thing that people do on social media. In the late afternoon, a knock comes to her door and her brain thinks, tea time and break time, bitches, but then <laughs> it's Malcolm. This is not their usual day, so she's quite surprised to see him. She offers him some tea or chocolatel, which is amazing. He refuses, though, and she makes him come in anyway and makes him some chocolatel while telling while he tells her of Coram Van Texel's visit to the trout. Then he passes along Coram's, like, message, and he's just like, Oakley Street. <laughs> the Lannister's son the regards. Ah, uh, yeah. <sighs> Hannah's like, good grief. And she actually says that later, after the council meeting. She's just like, good grief. Ah, I, I like that Chocolato's back here, right? Uh, even though he mm-hmm. says no, that's distracting from the real issue, right? She's like, I'm just going to make Chocolato and everything will be okay. Uh, spoiler I mean, alert, it's not. It's not, but how can you turn that down anyway? Oh, yeah. Well, and there's something there, right? Temptation, turning down the temptation. Interesting. Yeah, but I, he has it anyway, because she's like, you gotta, it's too cold out there for you to not have a warm beverage. Yeah, and she explains to him, look, Oakley Street's not a place, not physically, but in our hearts. She's like, it's being used <laughs> as a password. Is. And he explains some of the other weirdness that's going on. He's like, okay, cool. Well, Oakley Street isn't it. I also want to talk about Gerard Bonvi. And she's like, oh, I know that name. I heard it at college. I stayed for dinner recently. I don't often do that. And one of the lawyers mentioned his story. He wasn't long out of prison for either assault or grievous bodily harm. Why not both? A famous case because the chief prosecution witness was Lyra's mother. She basically did him in, and Bon V had sworn he would get revenge against her. Yeah, Malcolm tells her what Bonville had told Alice, that he was Lyra's father, but turns out he is actually trying to hurt Lyra. Malcolm says that he must tell the nuns this evening and help them fix that shutter. Hannah says that maybe they need more shutters, and it's like, you know, if only the police could be trusted. That's that's a She literally said those words. It's literally in the book. Hannah gets it. Malcolm brings up his next point, the abuse that Bonville dealt to his demon. He says he thinks it was likely that Bonneville is the one who cut off her leg (laughs) as well. They both turn to the fire thinking of how awful it is. And I I, I do want to like think about that for a second because we know that the leg, right, was severely injured by his encounter with Quorum Ventexel and therefore like probably unusable so there's something weird there going on right like on one hand yes bonneville was probably the one who cut off the leg but was it like a necessary amputation at the same time and it's awful either way you think of it yeah but it definitely wasn't just him who did it on that one i mean coram did beat the shit out of that demon too (laughs) <laughs> it was not great I mean, it was a fight, fight for his bad. life but yeah, yeah. I, which I get, I, get, I, get but... I do uh and i think there's something to that too right because we're about to see yeah. the duality of nugent for example of how like you think he's a nice dude and then you're like oh he's a ruthless prick so there's uh-huh. something to that too not saying quorum's ever done anything wrong because he's perfect in my opinion i agree <laughs> if there's Grandpa. a one if there's one perfect character in these books He's gonna put there. that Coram on a pedestal. Put that Coram on a pedestal. pedestal. <laughs> Malcolm breaks the silence. He's like, Coram's right about the flood, I think. And Hannah's like, I'll take precautions. I'll move the books upstairs to start. And he's like, thank God. Uh, she asks what he's gonna do about the nuns. And he's like, I can't just say Oakley Street to them. And Hannah's like, you can't say that to anyone, Malcolm, actually. <laughs> That's the point, Malcolm. <sighs> 
She says he'll have to be persuasive, and he thanks her for having some tea. He'll come back Saturday. Hannah's anxious about the whole situation. She wonders if he told anyone, specifically his parents, and about what he had seen that evening before in the bedroom, and she's pretty sure this could tr deeply traumatize the kid. She's worried about his well-being. She also wonders about this Egyptian man and his knowledge of Oakley Street. Is he a friend, a foe, or an agent, perhaps? Later that night, she gets an invitation, or more of a command, right, to come to dinner. Just as she's trying to figure out what the fuck to wear to this dinner with George Papa Dimitri, she receives a follow-up envelope with an address, 28 Staverton Road, 7 p.m., which I looked up today. And if any of you live on Staverton, sorry I creeped, looked up and down that street, wanted to really get a feel for the dinner scene, you know. Lots of shrubbery. <laughs> Lots of shrubbery. Well, they arrive at the villa at one minute past seven, a bit north of Jericho, with a gorgeous garden filled with, yes, shrubbery and trees. It's difficult to see past the road. She's welcomed by a woman who looked North African, about 40, Yasmin Al-Kaisi. And three people lingered in the drawing room as she entered. One of them is, yes, Professor Papa Dimitriou, who seems to be in charge of the room. It's a room that's low ceiling and decked out with naphtha lamps, pictures, watercolors, drawings, all adorning the wall. And the furniture is neither antique nor modern, but comfortable. She's then introduced first to the hosts, Dr. Adnan Al-Kaisi and Mrs. Yasmin Al-Kaisi. And Dr. Adnan has a desert fox demon. I thought that a demon hour was totally necessary for this for several reasons. As we mentioned, the wild dog dream happening earlier, Adnan has a desert fox, or more commonly known as a fennec fox, as I'm sure Eliana will reference soon. So his demon is a fennec fox, and it is indeed another wild dog. I do think this is interesting considering that Adnan, Yasmin, George, and Thomas are all trying to use Malcolm, as we learn right? So the dogs that are chasing him are not necessarily just the hyena, but also here, these people. The fennec fox is a small crepuscular fox that's native to the Sahara and the Sinai Peninsula, which connects with Yasmin looking to be of North Africa. I thought that was a good connection on Pullman's part. It's an mm -hmm. omnivore. It digs its den in sand, either in open areas or places sheltered by plants with stable sand dunes. So when a family of these foxes lives together, they have these like underground bubbles, basically, that are all hmm. interconnected. It's so cute. They're so smart. They're very weird, right? Because foxes are solitary creatures. So the fennec fox is different. They mate and pair for life and roam in packs of like 8 to 12. Ah. Well, I mostly know this fox from the Gen 6 Pokemon Firestarter <laughs> Fennekin. It, it, it basically looks like a desert fox, but poofier and in the colors that you would associate with a Pokemon Firestarter. Either way, Hannah's introduced to Lord Nugent. The Lord Nugent. <laughs> She's offered a drink. She chooses white wine. And George doesn't beat around the bush in telling them the purpose of them being here. This is an Oakley Street meeting! The words! He said it! And everyone here knows about Hannah's role in the society. Though it turns out she doesn't know about theirs, and he plans to explain the very complicated situation to her in hopes that she will help them to resolve it. Lord Nugent will speak first, because yes, she may know him as the ex-chancellor, but here, he's the director of Oakley Street. His demon's a lemur, next to him in the chair as he speaks. And looking back at the start of the book, he did have the lemur... 
he did have the lemur demon with him at the trout. I didn't really pay attention to that. So I thought that was a cool catch. And Pan is a lemur twice in the original books. Not a ton of meaning to it at the time, but lemurs are interesting. They're really high ranking spiritually. They're usually like symbols of bossiness, communication, social interactions, manipulative behavior because they're very strong cognitive ability. And that stands out very much with Mr. Nugent. Uh, I did learn a lot of things from a lemur in my childhood named Zabumafu, but... Oh my god. <sighs> uh... <gasps> Actually, I guess I was kind of older, I don't know. It's just like there's nothing on TV. But... <laughs> So interestingly about lemur demons, the man who speaks to Lyra in Northern Lights slash the Golden Compass mm-hmm. after she escapes from Mrs. Coulter's apartment, and he's actually like super creepy about his interaction with her and being a little too friendly in a way that's like stranger danger. He is a lemur demon. Yeah. And then as we might remember from Chloe and me saying like, oh, what a shame that lemur was so cute. The astronomer <laughs> that Lee visits in the His Dark Materials show also has a lemur demon. Yeah, absolutely adorable. And it's really, again, such a shame. It's sad. Such a shame that these creatures are so manipulative and bad always. But that's true. He I'm was sure being not very overtly creepy, though. That guy that speaks to her in Northern Lights. Yeah. I was looking at that, and I didn't really think of anything I wanted. I was like, yeah, whatever. It was just a moment. I'll just stick to this. But I'm glad you bring it up, because overtly creepy, overtly nice. And that is kind of what Nugent does. He goes mm-hmm. on, though, with his charisma. He's like, you're not the only alethiometer reader. You're dispensable. Ha <laughs> ha, just kidding. But what if uh, for Oakley Street? And he says, we have others in Uppsala and Bologna. But we rely heavily on you. Hysterically, they actually don't have one in Bologna, he's about to reveal. Uh, Geneva's alethiometer is in the hands of the magisterium, he mentions. And when Hannah asks, he answers that the other Oxford readers are all scholars. None of them are secretly co-spies. Yasmin pipes in and is like, unless they're magisterium readers. And Lord Nugent gives her a smile, but the smile fades quickly because he announces, well, Bologna's reader was murdered. And the alethiometer was stolen. Had we not acted quickly, our agent captured it. It would be in the enemy hands. And then he reveals it under a naphtha lamp within a battered box. They want Hannah to take it for a compromise. She must set aside her academic work and read for them full time. She would have the alethiometer in hand 24-7. Before Adnan can speak more about the situation, Hannah has questions. She says, Lord Nugent referred to the Magisterium in a way that made it clear it's the enemy. She has associated the CCD with a lot of those same things, and she assumes that that's connected. She's happy to fight both of them, but she needs to understand who Oakley Street is. She can't keep going on blind and hopes Dr. Alkaisi will make it clear. He promises to take extra care, and his fox demon settles neatly near him. He explains that Oakley is a secret agency of the government, set up in 1933 with the purpose of messing with the Magisterium's work. Just before the Swiss War, Britain, with a Y, had been likely to fall to the armed Magisterium forces. They survived with a large portion of credit being to the Office for Special Inquiry, or what is now Oakley Street. Their purpose was to defend democracy, freedom of thought, and expression. They were lucky with the monarchy over time. King Richard had supported them. The director of Oakley is always a privy councillor, and the old king also had a passion in what they were doing. King Michael 
not so much, but his son, the current king, was supportive quietly. So you know how this is like an alternate Britain, right? Like this whole map is alternate as we've discussed. Yeah, this is an (laughs) AU, an alternate universe. I kind of wonder, to bring up some kings, with this talk here of King Richard and the old king, I'm wondering if this Michael they're referring to is Michael Abney Hastings, the 14th Earl of Loudoun, who had a really disputed claim to the throne. In 2004, there was a documentary made about him, actually, about this claim, and it was broadcast in the UK. It repeated this claim that Abney Hastings, as the senior descendant of George Plantagenet, first Duke of Clarence, is the rightful king of England, and it basically involves two claims, disputed claims. First, Edward IV of England, was illegitimate based on the accusation his father, Richard, Duke of York, was absent when Edward was conceived. Second, that the Plantagenet crown should have descended by male preference instead of agnatic primogenitor and conquest. Also, Henry VI placed an attainder on Edward after he was restored to the throne and named George, Duke of Clarence, heir to the throne. So uh, there's all this like alternate history, and it makes me wonder if Pullman's trying to follow that because of King Michael. There's no King Michael, but there is a possible King Michael in these later years, which would have been him. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I also didn't realize that the Magisterium's influence or infiltration of Britain is so... I guess, kind of recent in this universe in some ways. Like, I, I think we kind of think that it's been there since the for the foundations of Britain for a while, but it seems like it's saying here that it, feels it, like it was in 1933, Yeah, right? Like, it, it's much more, like, creeping into it. So I think that's interesting because I've never really thought of it that way. Yeah. Well, either way, the Parliament knows very little of Oakley Street. Their activities are funded very poorly out of the General Defense Fund, and a group of highly pro-magisterium MPs would love to discover them and ruin them. Adnan tells her their paradox. We can only defend democracy by being undemocratic. Sounds like something the bad guys would say, but okay. Every Secret Service knows this, and some are more comfortable (laughs) with it than others. America looking at you. Yeah, that brings up the next paradox that Hannah needs to understand. Wait, so who owns the alethiometer then, and why didn't you return it to Bologna? They're like, ethically, the governing body and the university in Geneva was giving in to the magisterium, and the murdered reader had likely been murdered in a scheme to take it from her by the magisterium. And then looking around, Hannah's like, oh my god, we're fighting a war. A secret war. Yeah, that paradox, that paradox right there is great because then in the next sentence, they literally say it all over again. They're like, well, ethically, it was going to go to the bad guys. So we thought we shouldn't return it. We should just keep it, you know? Ethically, which I agree with, but I'm like, don't like call it ethical, like moral sandwiches here, you know? Like, yeah, own it. Like, I I feel that way. Yeah, I'm just like, if you're going to do it, own it. Yeah, like... That's the thing about the government. If you guys just told the truth. So they promised to keep her protected because the last person in her position was <laughs> killed, right? We just we just learned this. And they reiterate, oh yeah, this will be full time, by the way, like real full time. And George is like, remind us what you do with your time, which first of all, I've never felt so attacked. Uh, second of all, she explains that she juggles her tiny bit of Bodleian alethiometer time with 12 others in the research, as well as getting her Oakley Street missives done. 
But also, if she didn't fulfill her part of the research, she'd get kicked from the program in the Bodleian Library. So the Bologna lithiometer could definitely solve that little issue, but it also means she'd be giving up her future and her career, right? Like, she's been working so hard on this research, as well as putting herself in major harm's way and possibly others. She tells George that he surely can see what kind of sabotage this is to her. He tells her he's asking this of her in this great time of war and sacrifice because of her prowess. She may be slower than some of the other readers on her study, but she's the one who has learned the most and it's clear to tell. She needn't worry about her career. She had plenty of aptitude for this. Yes. So first I wanted to say a side note while we're talking about the Bodleian Library. I came across a line when I was looking at some stuff in the original trilogy and <laughs> Lyra calls the Bodleian Library Bodley's Library. <laughs> it's cute. Cute. So cute. <laughs> but coming back to this and, and Hannah's career, I think that this is quite pointed because in the next chapter we do get Mrs. Coulter's formal appearance in this story. And it's just a few chapters, of course, uh, from Lyra's father making his appearance. But anyway, Hannah and Ralph's concerns here, I think, are extremely valid, especially when we contrast it and see what Marisa's life has been like and how difficult it's been for her to sort of climb that ladder because, yes, the work that Hannah's doing may be for the greater good, but what they're telling her isn't, like, very reassuring in terms of her academic work or career, right? Like, they're just like, oh, but it's okay, you're doing such great work already that no one's going to think any less of you. And and maybe that's true. Maybe that is how the academic world works. And I do think this is an area that Philip Pullman is, knows much better than I do. There are many things that he knows better than I do. But this is definitely one that he's lived throughout his life, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's where his bread and butter is. So maybe Hannah Ralph's career is quite safe. But I think it is a really pointed protest on her part, considering that not only is she a scholar in this field, she has a doctorate. It's a prestigious and very rare small field. And then when you look at how the original trilogy shows Lyra's upbringing at Jordan College and the framing of the academic world in the original trilogy, and then this is the first book that you read after that, women scholars kind of seem to hold a lot less esteem, right, than men scholars. And maybe that's not true overall from some of the things we see within the later series. It is and it isn't. Uh, there's definitely a lot of, I think, barriers. And if it those didn't exist, right, then it wouldn't be an issue that Marisa has faced her entire career, which explains like the deep lengths that she has gone to in many respects, like for her career. And it's part of why she even gave up her child. So this is a big thing to be asking of Hannah Ralph. Yeah, I don't think there's really a contest for how Pullman feels about this. I think he's saying it on purpose that he wants us to sit here and think about what she's giving up if she says yes to this. Uh, it's a little bit of a remix on Lee and Serafina's conversation, right, about free will and democracy and everything. But it's also a little bit of a remix here on Mary Malone, right? Hannah obviously brings Mary into the, uh -huh. the, the past with us here. She's that similar character. And Mary is told by angels of what she has to do. And she's convinced by Lyra and by the angels to have faith and give up her career and her research, which is obviously going down the drain anyways. But Hannah, I mean, her career is blossoming, right? Like, she's really close to uh -huh. a breakthrough. Uh, and 
I think that this is really, really well contrasted when we get to the point where they reveal in the next chapter, we have George revealing, you know, like, yeah, by the way, we're also half bad guys. These were the warning signs. These were all red flags. Uh, And it's, it's not easy for these women, for Marisa, for Hannah, as you said, to just pick up their career. You don't just pick your career up after you put it in the trash like oh you know what i think after trying to earn this my whole life after everyone scrutinized every single thing i did from breathing to shitting to whatever i wore to what i ate like i don't you know i'm just gonna put it in the trash it's not just what you do you know like they've been raised against all odds against this and they've succeeded and this is a big ask this is very big yeah and i mean you brought up Mary Malone, and I think that's an apt comparison because she does give up a lot. She she gives up right like the potential for a big funding mm-hmm. for her project, which could greatly advance her career. But she knows that it's going to be used for nefarious purposes, so she goes against it and then destroys the computer. But I mean, it's a lot easier to answer a calling from angels, mm-hmm. exactly, than it is from like random men that you don't really know and who keeps saying like, I know this is unethical, but also ethically it is. (laughs) It's easier to, it's easier to say yes to angels than to that. And it is kind of that same question of when Mary and Oliver are faced with the funding, right? Like it is that same thing of Charles saying, I can give you everything you want. And Hannah thinking like, do I want to throw my research away to help these guys when I don't even know what they stand for? Yeah. Yeah. And she's only had, this is like her only conversation with them, right? This is the only time they court her on this. When I feel like usually people get a lot more, (laughs) there's a lot more discussion and back and forth negotiation and stuff. But anyway. Yeah, she's not in the position to negotiate at all. There's no negotiating. She's been put in the position. Like they came to her, they let her in. She was not let in prior to this. And that is made very obvious. Yeah. Next level of clearance, baby. Well, Lord Nugent addresses her fears. He's like, we were stretched too thin to properly guard the Bologna reader. We have less of that problem here. We're all here. Adnan pipes in as well, reminding her, this is protecting the freedom of our world. This is a war worth fighting. Yasmin asks, how many alethiometers are there in total? They tell her five and that there's a rumored missing sixth. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yasmin asks, why don't we just make a new one? And George says, Hannah might have more to say about that, but I think it's something to do with the metal alloy. The needles and alloys are made differently, and any replication doesn't seem to work. One can't really live without the other. Adnan calls it one of the many mysteries that they are working to solve. Lord Nugent got up from the table and brought the little box with the battered corners over to Hannah. It looked like Rosewood, a painted design on the top, was only just recognizable as a coat of arms. I love this. It's a much prettier long-form passage, but the language here, it, it, it talks about how this is an antique, but it's not an antique in the way where you think it'd be some delicate, beautiful thing. She's gazing at it, and it's worn, right, just like the Bodleian alethiometer is worn, but this one's deeper in size. It's chunkier. It's less decorated. It has an engraving of the sun rising behind the needle in hands, and as soon as she puts it in her hand, although it might not have been as beautiful and ornate, she knew she wanted to be alone with it. Mm-hmm. It's a little dude, but... Is this a vibrator? 
I that's what I thought. That's honestly, and then I came to the doc, and you had written the same thing, and I was like, I'm glad both Chloe and I were like, that's the language you use with the vibrator. I mean, she literally then says it felt right for her, and I'm like, well, when you know, you know. If you mm-hmm. know, you know. She's, she's like, I. She just wants to be alone with it, and I was like, all right, I feel that girl. Uh, mood. <laughs> well, Hannah goes and gives it a test drive. <laughs> It continues to be lewd. I just want to say it keeps being lewd. <laughs> yeah, that's true. This is all. I, the, I'm gonna. You know how like there are scenes in the Song of Ice and Fire where, like Danny when she rides Drogon out of the dragon pit to talk about that other series that we yes, cover. Yes, like yes, yes. that me. one. The language there is very sexual. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Higher. You should, like that's absolutely. It's a very sexually charged scene, and this that's Hannah with the alethiometer. Um, she's letting her mind slip further, setting the alethiometer to the baby, the beehive, and the apple. You know, lots of different settings, lots of different speeds and patterns on this alethiometer. And (laughs) so each of those symbols stands for a person, productive work, and inquiry, respectively, asking if she should take the job. And she receives the marionette in return after six, six swings which she says that in this sort of simple construction of a question usually just means yes. <coughs> so she says yes, she'll do it. And I'm just like, I don't get it, though. Like, how does the marionette mean yes? And I'm like, is it the association of the words pull or like obey? And I'm like, is there something I'm missing like on how the marionette means yes? I think it's obey um, uh, would be the tone, right, in the moment. And so for the moment, it serves as affirmation to take the job, but... As the reader, and I would never, I mean, she's a decorated doctorate, you know, like she reads this shit every day and I don't do shit with my life except, you know, like hang out with you talking about Hannah Ralph, this fictional character. But like, to me, that says that she's the puppet on strings, which we learn next chapter because they explain the blackmail and how they need Malcolm. And she's like, oh, I was Boo Boo the Fool the whole time. Like, that's what it says to me, the marionette. And and there's more than that, right? Because it's hysterical because she uses the beehive, the apple, uh, and the baby. So the baby and the apple and the beehive, that to me is pretty much reminiscent of Lyra's whole story, right? Um, It is, it is. The beehive representing dust and honey and, you know, uh, work and productive, obviously, but like sweetness. Yes, sweetness. Uh, The apple as Eve, yes. And the baby... So I thought that was really interesting uh, and that she is a puppet in the scheme of everything happening around the girl, just like Mary yes. was. I think that's a great that's a great catch and interpretation. That's absolutely um, another level of what's going on here. And I think that what you said for the marionette makes perfect sense because I was just like, I don't understand how this like, if I were the person reading this, I'd be like, I don't know that. I don't know that this means I should take it. Yeah, but... that means you're being manipulated, sweetie. That's what it says to <laughs> I was me. Like, I was like, I don't understand how she read it like that. <laughs> she has a doctorate, so, is what I'm saying. I get it, but I'm just like, are you sure you do? What she needs is a vibrator. Oh my god. Well, <laughs> to be fair, she does say, she's like, you know what? If we're going to do this, I need the books because I can't do this without having the books. So apparently not. I don't have the books and I did it fine, but whatever. No, I'm just kidding. They promise to find her all the books she needs, but they start to argue within themselves about how, well, how are we going to buy them? We have to cast a false lead so no one realizes why we need these books. 
In the earlier days of Oakley Street, they would write these kind of things on green paper, which was their term for false leads. So they're like, we need green paper to put out there. We got to put out some green paper. They'll put out rumors that maybe they've made another alethiometer. They'll figure it out, they say. Hannah reminds them, she's like, what about income? And Lord Newton's like, we'll take care of you, sweetheart. An uncle or something, we'll call it, left you money. We don't have a lot, but you won't go hungry. Yasmina's like, oh, do you have a safe? And she's like, no. And they said they'll deliver one, maybe in the disguise of like a boiler or stove. Yeah. And then after all this, Hannah remembers to ask Lord Nugent her own question. She's like, so do you know Corm Van Texel or Gerard Bonneville? And Nugent says he doesn't quite know a quorum, but Hannah senses a lie in his voice. Though Gerard rings a bell. And he explains that Gerard uh, was an experimental theologian who had been leading research into the Ruzikov field, who lost his bearings and was jailed for what he thinks was a sexual offense. And Hannah tells them that the man has actually been in Oxford to Malcolm's father's pub. Mm. She asks George how to contact them, and they plan to meet Fridays at 3pm to talk about a book, she means to write, for his advice in being a scholar. <coughs> Quote. And Nugent... Wait. Yeah. Book. Uh, it's the third book of dust. And <laughs> Never coming out. Uh. I think it's going to come out. It's going to come out. I think we'll get that before the wind's winter. Oh, I absolutely do. I really do. <laughs> so um, Lord Nugent gives her her first task. Ask the alethiometer why the child at the priory at God's Toe is important. Before they part, Nugent says one last thing. Your young friend, the boy from the inn, Matthew, is it? Malcolm Polstead? Uh, yeah, Malcolm. We won't put him in danger, but he could be valuable in a number of ways. Keep in touch with him. Tell him what you think he can keep quiet about. Pick up whatever you can. The energy in the room completely goes dark. Vibes are not great. Everyone's quiet. They're all, like, in their coats and goodbyes are being said, and it's over. They're gone. And once they've left, Hannah, like, leaves. She looks at Jasper and she's like, what the fuck just happened in there? And <gasps> Jasper says they knew that he meant something underneath what he actually said, and they didn't like it. Hannah says, I got that far myself. I wonder what it was. Yeah. So... In a conversation about instruments with secret meanings, levels of meanings, right? Hannah Ralph can easily read the alethiometer for the most part, but turns out reading the other meanings of people's looks and the subtext of their words turns out to be much more difficult and opaque. No, that is interesting that she's understood. I mean, the looks and the subtext are making way more sense than the alethiometer, though, right now, right? Like, she doesn't know what they're saying, but she at least is like, something's wrong from their looks, where the alethiometer is, like, screaming at her, and she's like, nah, we're good. It's all good. She's like, that's not a red flag. (laughs) She's like, oh, I love the color red. (laughs) And there's more than that, right? So, okay, so the end of this chapter, it's not just that that makes her uneasy, the idea of Nugent calling Malcolm Matthew? Yeah, dude, like, what? Come on, dude, you gotta g- put some respect on your child's spy. I think it's quite obvious that they're trying to convey here, he's on the good side, but he's not a good guy, right? Later, Hannah says Nugent is ruthless, and it's obvious that his ends might not be justifying his means. And you know who it brings me right on back to? is a little ditty named Asriel Belacqua who sacrificed Roger and was willing to sacrifice Roger, not knowing who he is or caring who he is, 
versus Nugent being willing to sacrifice Matthew. I mean, Malcolm. That stood out very strongly here. Yeah, I think that's a great comparison. And I, I, I didn't really think about that, but you're, that's absolutely true. He doesn't care about Malcolm. He pretends to. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, Asriel pretended to with Roger and is like, I mean, he cares about Roger, but he cares about Roger for Asriel things. Yeah. And he cares about Matthew for Matthew things. Wait, fuck. Malcolm thing. <laughs> well, speaking of people who care deeply about children, chapter 14, Lady with Monkey. <laughs> I love this chapter title. It's So I'm realizing it's also, I think, a play on the painting that inspired Lyra in one of the forms that Pan takes frequently, which is the ermine, and is entitled, it's by Da Vinci, it's entitled Lady with Ermine. Uh, that's interesting. I didn't really think about it, but it definitely is. And not only is it that, but it's also a reference then to the collectors. Because there's the artwork of the lady with monkey, as we talked a little bit about during our show coverage in series two. Uh, But in the collectors, yes, layers in the collectors, a story inspired by Kate Bush, Philip Pullman's dear, dear friend, who's always running up that hill. Uh, <laughs> it was Kate Bush joke, everyone. Thank you. I, I I know. Thank you. Thank you. But yeah, uh, she inspired a story <laughs> about two art pieces that keep ending up in the same collection. So he wrote a story about the same idea. One is a photo of a beautiful young blonde girl smiling, right? And the other is a statue of a golden monkey. And it, it's supposed to be Marisa and the monkey, but lady with monkey. Yep. Lady with monkey. Well,. I want to take this quick moment to plug our friend Maya, Maya Draws, who has made a recreation of Lady with Ermine, but uh, with Lyra and Pan as the figures in it. And we'll, I think we've linked it before, but we'll link it again. It's so great. It's really, she, I also love her Marisa art. Her Marisa art with the monkey. Yes. Oh my God. We'll have to plug some Lady with Monkey. Yes. (laughs) Her Lady with Monkey art is also good. And I think it's some of the first stuff that we saw of Maya's. So definitely check that out, all of you. Yes. The nuns at the Godstow Priory are preparing for the Feast of St. Scholastica, which isn't quite a celebration, but a day of ritual and oratory devotion. Malcolm arrives and Sister Fenella greets him. She had excused herself from the events to watch Lyra because a baby obviously can't sing hymns and pray. Panelaman is doing his favorite thing with Lyra, changing rapidly into different birds while she's screaming with laughter. Malcolm asks if he'll be able to speak with Benedicta after the service, but Fenella doesn't think it's likely. She's like, I can relay a message, though. While she cores into a cabbage, Malcolm tells her he's brought warning of a flood from the Egyptian man, Horm Van Texel. He tells her no one believed him when he told them about it. We have this line of... I just wanted to make sure Sister Benedicta knew, so she could make everything safe, especially Lyra. Cause you're a little lying here on this bank. I told my dad, and he said you could all come and stay at the trout, only it probably wouldn't be holy enough. She laughed and clapped her old red hands. (sighs) So cute. It is cute, and you know... Sister Fenella smiles at his earnestness and thanks him, but tells him not to worry. When she was a novice at the Priory, there had been a flood 50 years prior, and they survived well enough. 
Malcolm comments that there was one other thing, but he'd wait till tomorrow and tell Benedicta then. He asked Sister Fenella if she'd seen Mr. Taphouse, but she had not. Malcolm had hoped to speak with him, but he didn't know where to find him outside of the Priory, and Sister Fenella didn't either. He decides to wait for the worship to end so he can speak with Benedicta after all, filling the short wait while he hangs out with Lyra. He tries to teach Lyra to say his name, and it's so cute. She just dribbles, and Asta thinks it's so funny, because it is. Fenella and Malcolm watch Pan and Lyra, and Pan starts to turn into a mole, finds it rather clever. Malcolm's like, how does Lyra and Pan know how to be a mole when they've never seen one? And Fenella says it's a mystery only the good lord can understand. Fenella's demon, Geraint, remembers being a mole once. She says whenever she was frightened, she'd just turn into one. Asta says, yeah, you just feel molish. Malcolm tells Lyra she can teach Pan to say Malcolm then, and Asta turns into a monkey to entertain them, and they laugh. Malcolm tries to get Lyra to say Fenella, and Pan turns into a squirrel while she giggles. Very clever indeed. It is clever. It's cute. And I do have some dustier discussion thoughts about this little scene and Malcolm teaching Lyra, but the question, I, I remember the question regarding how does Lyra know to turn into a mole if she's never seen one, reminds me a little bit of that sort of semi-platonic, in terms of uh, the philosopher Plato and, and the forms, uh, discussion that Hannah and Malcolm had a few chapters back. Oh, She's like, well, if we've never seen it, if you've never experienced it, if humans didn't ex exist in this world, does the concept of sweetness still exist? Does this uh, idea, yes. like, does light still have an association with beeswax and candles and i think that there's a little bit of something there too with that idea of like what is intrinsic knowledge what is something that we are born with or just know in terms of the universe and the questions of how does pan know what a mole is huh so huh yeah yeah that's a great thought i didn't really put it together and we did discuss that at length hmm. we, we discussed that once once upon a time not too long ago actually <laughs> The nuns are let out of service, and Malcolm hears them stirring around the corner. Benedicta joins them and says she's glad to see him, because she needs to speak to him as well. He's definitely not in trouble, he notes by her tone, which is good. <laughs> and she asks him if he remembers the man with the three-legged hyena he had told her about before. And he says, wow, amazing, that's actually precisely what I'm here to talk about and how he saw him breaking into the Priory's broken shuttered window and Benedicta tells him it wasn't broken. Someone had just left it opened. I totally forgot that. I thought it had been broken and on this read through, I was like, oh, that's foreshadowing. Oh, oh, it's foreshadowing. Uh, which we find out, of course, in the next chapter is Malcolm goes, oh, shit, that's what I thought, too. It was left open, open like that way. And very sneaky, very sneaky, just little, wait a second, it was left open. Hmm. Hmm. Especially with last chapter being Alice Talks, and of course, kind of the introduction of him being Gerard Bonvie, being a sexual uh -huh. manipulator, deviant abuser. Uh, yeah. Interesting how he's tying all these ideas together. Yeah. Benedicta stops Malcolm. She's like, I want you to stay absolutely as far away from that deranged, mentally ill man as you can she knows Malcolm has a friendly disposition, but that man's dangerous. She asks what he wanted to warn her about, and he's like, of the flood. But to his dismay, she doesn't believe the flood is a real threat, and also is like, the Egyptians are full of superstition. Poor Malcolm. 
His dad's like, don't worry about it, son. Vanella's like, I don't think you should worry about it. And now even keeled and stern Benedicta is saying, oh, it's nothing to worry about. All of these adults suck, is what I'm saying. There, there's certainly an element of Cassandra to this, right? Like, obviously, there's uh-huh. the parallel of Noah, but there's certainly a Cassandra element of this, of the of the chapter of Malcolm being sent to spread the word and everybody denying him no matter what, right? Cassandra, daughter of Priam, king of Troy, Apollo gives her the gift of prophecy because she was super mega hot. But then she's like, I'm not going to fuck you, Apollo. And he's like, well, I'm placing a curse on you, so no one's going to believe you ever, bitch. So that's how that story goes. Uh, but I could see it loosely having the framework to this chapter. And another close example besides Noah or Cassandra to me is Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Uh, hmm. In Isaiah's commission, Isaiah 6 from the book of prophets, Isaiah is, call- is called basically to be God's messenger, right, to the people of Israel. And he's sent to foretell the ruin of God's people, but the people of Israel don't wish to hear it. God tells him to be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, and to make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Malcolm has been tasked with an incredible thing to believe of an 11-year-old boy, much like Lyra was, right, of spreading the word of this flood, though. Not necessarily the word of God, but the word of Coram Van Texel here, which, you know, when you think about it later on, Coram has become Farder Coram, Hand of the King, mm-hmm. right, to John Fa. I'd say that's a pretty important exchange that Hand of the King is telling him to go on. Not only is it Coram tasking him, but also Hannah. We see the stress of that in the Bologna instrument here stacking up on Hannah, but we're going to see that stress rack up on Malcolm finally much more. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely see, as you said, Malcolm put into this sort of prophet position. And as you were saying, you know, regarding the adults who don't believe him, I think it's interesting that it's the nuns, right? They're closely associated with the church, and they're the ones who don't have faith in Malcolm's prophecies. And since we are discussing the rest of book one within this, um, regarding those floods and the non-believers, I... It's it's interesting because that flood, right, is fulfilling this really archetypal role and along with retribution and drowning and and destruction being part of what happens in those sorts of flood narratives, there's of course a really cleansing element. Mm-hmm. And first of all, we've been we've been discussing, you know, how Lord Nugent, it turns out, is pretty slimy. Um, and we'll get there soon, but the flood prevents Malcolm from getting caught up in Nugent's schemes, I think, based on the timing. Yeah. So that's that's one element. It does that too. And it also disrupts the League of St. Alexander. We're going to come back to that in a second. Uh, I, I think that it plays a big role in breaking that apart because the disbandment, its eventual disbandment is part of like the whole reason why the League was made fails Marisa. She ends up losing Lyra anyway and then Lyra's put in sanctuary so she's like well, I know where she is but like what's the fucking point anymore? Um, but it also means that the schools are closed. They're not meeting as usual because there's a whole like natural disaster of rebuilding period. So that kind of just breaks apart the League of St. Alexander's ability to have power. And then there's also, again, that religious aspect represented by the nuns that's sort of wiped away. It's, I think, a much sadder note because I think we've seen that the nuns have been very benevolent. Mm-hmm. But the nuns 
were non-believers when it came to the flood, and and most of them die, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty it's horribly. It's pretty fucking. It's pretty horrible because they're all super nice. I mean, God told do... y'all. God sent yeah. Isaiah, and here he was, and y'all didn't want to listen. They didn't, and and it is sad because I I think a part of it has to do with like they do represent still that religious that mm-hmm. Christian entity in the story, right? They're not the magisterium, but they're within like that system somewhere, and I don't know if we could pre- interpret it as them also being cleansed and washed away in keeping with the sort of larger story theme, both in um within this entire his dark materials world of like undoing religion, mm-hmm. so. Interesting, especially then when you consider Mary being the ultimate, you know, undoing religion in casting aside her nun, her nunnery. Mm, her like, nun- uh, when you compare the, yeah. these nuns to her, it's very interesting to see them have lived this long life in God's toes priory and like this is their life, this is their home, this is who they are as people and they've never wanted it differently. And then you get to meet Mary in the main series who always wanted something different. Uh-huh. And it's it's really sad, actually. Like, I mean, the nuns are so sweet. Yeah, yeah, they are. Fenella and Benedict are like, <sighs> yeah, yeah. Well, Malcolm follows up, and he's like, "Hey, Benedicta, do you know where Mister Taphouse is?" And she's like, "Yeah, he's had a few rough days of work. He's not feeling great, so I sent him home to rest." She sends him off, and she's like, remember what I said about the man? And exactly what Coram said. And Malcolm works towards his next targets, his teachers. He couldn't warn the nuns properly, and he thought teachers might be easier, but no, they weren't. None of them believed him. They gave him the same excuses. Egyptians are superstitious or untrustworthy, which obviously there's something there, especially in comparing them to a marginalized people, right? Like uh, the mm-hmm. Roma, that you're calling them superstitious and untrustworthy. It's drivel. It's pure prejudice. It's touted by the government because of the resources they hate to have to provide to, right? Just like with Sanctuary and why they're spending all this time hating it. Mm-hmm. Malcolm's friends, Eric and Robbie, they sort of believe Malcolm, but <laughs> Eric says he understands, though, why no one believes Egyptians. His father <laughs> said they have a hidden gender. He's trying to say hidden agenda, but Eric says you can't believe anything they say. But Malcolm calls Eric out for being daft, saying, what sort of secret plan could they really have? And Robbie mentions that Eric had stopped wearing his Alexandria badge. And then he's like, but have I really? He doesn't say that. He just flips it over. He's like, I got my league badge. It's hidden in my collar. He's like, that's a special second degree league member's way of wearing it. And Robbie's like, that's pretty sneaky, though, to hide it like that. He's like, because, you know, he wears his badge normally. At least people know where he belongs. Yeah, they're both straight up sitting here like, dude, you have to tell us if you're a cop legally. Like, if you're a cop, you have to. But no, that that really is the reference, right? Because Malcolm says, if you see someone's wearing a badge, you can just not say anything they could report. But if they hide it, you could find yourself in trouble and not know why. Yeah, it's unfair. It's bullshit. Yeah, it's pretty shitty. And I think we have spoken about this pretty extensively in the last episode but that continuation of the breakdown of social trust and this sort of next level of silencing people, that aspect prevents people from also banding together, right, to challenge the League. You know, we also have talked a lot about Revelations, right, the last couple episodes. and the, uh, Even over in A Song of Ice and Fire, we've been talking about the Mark of the Beast on and off and just prophecies here from Book of Prophecies, but the badge kind of reminds me of the Mark of the Beast. Mm. 
Yeah, I could definitely see that, which is a little... Well, that's how it goes, right? Yeah, I mean, it's they, a little heavy. They but... tack... Well, no, I was going to say the irony of it, but I mean, that's the whole point, right? That they tack on to religion to do mm-hmm. horrible things. But I mean, in the, in this book series, religion and God are, yeah. are bad, so... In this series. Yeah. Well, I mean, ideally he's benevolent, but... Yeah. They do... They try to get what the second degree of the League membership is out of Eric. But Eric's like, I'm not going to tell you. And then Robbie and Andrew are like, so you're going to tell us within a week. (laughs) And Eric's super offended by this. He's like, how dare you? And like goes away and everyone's like, he's going to tell us in a week. I mean, that's your track record. I know, right? And I'm glad they make fun of him for it, because someone has to, you know? <laughs> that boy's gotta know. His dad's gotta know. Uh, yeah. Well, his dad, he obviously gets it from his dad, though. He got something from his dad, that's for sure. The League's influence had grown. Mr. Hawkins, the previous principal's successor, had compromised with the little terrorists, so now they reign supreme throughout the entire school. We get this line that Eric said Mr. Willis was at a special training camp, but he was believed as much as he usually was, so no one knew for sure. I thought that was interesting that Eric, no one believes him saying that Mr. Willis is at a special training camp, but as we know from some of the stuff said in the last few chapters, he's probably at a re-education camp, which is not a fun special training camp, and it's kind of in relation to people not believing Malcolm with the flood, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, like, Eric's not wrong. He's at some sort of special <laughs> training camp. It's just not the kind of special or training anyone wants. Yeah. Just like, yeah, Malcolm's not wrong. And, like... It's fascism. Yeah. Well... Some of the teachers had left the school. Some took a leave of absence or suspension and came back chastened. Well, sullen, we should say. Others vanished with no replacement. The real authority lay in the never-named, never-described pupils who met with Mr. Hawkins each day, and the next day their word would be announced as law in the assembly. Each time they'd present their word as the word of God, which protected them from Mr. Hawkins' arguments against their wants. And that actual use of God kind of feels significant here, huh? It really does, and it does feel intentional because they are saying that anyone who goes against them or argues back against their, like, random fucking school announcements are going to be considered blasphemous, like, literally in a religious sense, I'm pretty sure. And it's quite different, I think, from some of the other religious orders, right, and departments that we see in this specific book. Again, like, with the nuns, who are very nice and lovely, but... It's also absolutely right, uh, uh, more of that critique of how religion is used to further those hungry plans of some humans. Yeah. The pupils in this group were guided by two or three wordless adults, rumored to be special governors who roamed the halls taking note. Other teachers seemed to regard them as powerful and acted submissive to them. No one knew why they were here, though, but everyone knew not to argue about their presence. Half the school had joined the League at this point, and it was a bit odd. We have a line of, It was as if it had always been there, as if it would be strange for a school not to be pervaded by this half-enthralling, half-frightening miasma. Uh, <laughs> it reminds me of COVID. Um, yeah, they go on to say that lessons have been normal, though now they were preceded by a prayer. Oh, must be awful. Don't know how that goes. 
Pictures and paintings that once hanged in classrooms were replaced with posters of Bible quotes. People didn't seem as ill-behaved, but now they walked around with an air of guilt hanging over them. Okay, some of the language here is really good work. Like, you can tell this passage was written out of passion, right, for the topic. Obviously, we know Philip has a Uh big passion for education, being an educator himself. I mean... He says obsequiousness, right? He uses the word obsequiousness in this passage. This passage is not for us. It was for him to flourish and tell his story of oppression, come to the elementary school on the lower side of the area. Uh, It was just great to see, I don't know, just some fun creative writing. It was a beautiful passage of just all these gorgeous, like you read, half enthralling, half frightening miasma. just a lot of fancy frilly text of him just explaining how far they've fallen. Yeah, it was for Philip. Saturday comes, and Malcolm is finally able to test ride LaBelle Sauvage. Coram was right. She's stiffer and faster. Ast- oh. <laughs> Asta rides along as a kingfisher, a lovely bright burb, and Malcolm tells Asta he thinks they need a new, bigger boat. Maybe they could find a boat builder after talking to Mr. Van Texel. Asta's like, how will we find him? And Malcolm's like, I guess I didn't really think about that one either. I love this because he keeps thinking, how will I find Mr. Taphouse? I guess I never thought about it. How will I find Mr. Van Texel? I guess I never thought about it. And soon the water will rise everywhere, so he can't find anybody. (laughs) Dude, shit was hard when you didn't have cell phones. Yeah, and when the water level was like eight feet off the ground. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't just, like, tell everyone and everyone... Anyway. <laughs> Malcolm wonders if Coram Van Texel is a spy. And he mentions Oakley Street to Asta, trailing off while Asta is busy gazing at fish in the water. Malcolm could feel his demon's eagerness to plunge into the water and catch the fish and silently urged her on, but she held back. I thought this line was interesting in the context of that earlier lesson that Malcolm had from his mother about, like, how he can't completely, like, control what his demon becomes, but he can, like, maybe kind of accidentally help it when it comes to the final form. Because I feel like if he was the kind of person, if Asta was the kind of demon who goes after the fish, right, he is trying to urge her on, and, and I guess she doesn't, but, you know, then Asta could maybe be a kingfisher, right, or a demon that likes to go in the water and hunt fish, but she's like, nah. Nah, not for me. (laughs) No. So, they tie off the boat and make their way to Hannah's, but Hannah has a visitor. They debate staying back and not going at all, but finally go toward the door, eyeing this vehicle. Its grandeur is putting Malcolm off, driving the want to. Not knock on the door. (laughs) Mood. But Asta insists that they are expected, and Malcolm says that they'll just have to be proper spies and be polite and keep their eyes open. (laughs) They knock, and Hannah invites them in. Jesper, Jesper, murmurs for them to be careful, while Hannah says louder that her visitor was just getting ready to go. Asta changes into a robin, then into a jackdaw, and Malcolm feels one with her uncertainty in her black feathers. He assumes an expression of being dumb and mild to go along with it, and then Hannah introduces him to Mrs. Coulter. The woman's name hit Malcolm like a bullet. This was Lyra's mother. She was the most beautiful lady he'd ever seen. Young and golden-haired and sweet-faced, dressed up in gray silk and wearing a scent, just the very faintest hint of a fragrance that spoke of warmth and sunlight and of the south. 
She smiled with such friendliness he was reminded of that very moment with Gerard Bonvie, and this was the woman who wanted nothing more to do with her own child. But he wasn't supposed to know that, and nothing would have made him admit he knew anything about the baby. There's a lot going on here, almost a little foreshadowing there of her name hitting Malcolm like a bullet. I didn't really think about that. Uh, mm. Her scent, that he smelled her scent, this is something prominent, right? Will smells her scent when he meets her throughout the main series. And I'm wondering if she got this scent when she went south to learn about the zombie, maybe? That could be something. We have a couple uh-huh. different things about her scent throughout the books, right? In the Amber Spyglass, Will smells the fragrance of some scent she was wearing combined with the fresh smell of her body. He feels disturbed by it. In the Northern Lights, Lyra notices her scent and her skin, the slight perplexing smell of her flesh, scented but somehow metallic. Her envelopes in the Northern Lights are scented with her fragrance. Her hair is scented heavily. Metatron smells it in the Amber Spyglass. In the Northern Lights, we find out that she has rose soap and that her handkerchief is scented as well. And of course, in the Amber Spyglass, Lyra recounts trusting Mrs. Coulter because of her beautiful smile and her sweet-scented glamour and how wrong she had been. Malcolm immediately sees these things about Mrs. Coulter, her scent, her smile, her warmness, and immediately associates her with Gerard Bonvie from the disposition. Mm. I thought that was really interesting that he just immediately saw through it and immediately said, ah, it's an empty smile. She is bad. Yeah. So he he's learning, right? He is picking things up now that he's been told about Gerard Bonneville and is and is applying those lessons to others. And I, I think what you calling out her scent is interesting. And also <clears throat> um, her rosy disposition. That and and that she doesn't have the metallic scent here. Yeah, she also she's like very much wanting information here, and it seems like she's not in control. Where the times that the metallic scent were present were obviously when she had the upper hand over Lyra, as far as just like overpowering her. There's two parties here, yeah. so Malcolm entering also helps, right? Uh, well, and hinders, as we're about to learn. I'm just wondering if it's like before. Hmm. The severing. She might have been severed. That's yeah. what I... Th- I think it probably is. I, I mean, I'm guessing the decade she spent apart from Lyra had to have been a pretty rough decade, right? Like, A, uh-huh. when we meet her, she has black hair, not blonde hair, first of all. So, you know, must have dyed her hair a few times, right, Pullman? Just kidding. I think it's just a mistake or a change that he decided to make. But she is blonde in this book, and in the main trilogy, she has dark hair. I so think he chose this because of Lyra's hair, right? No, so Lyra also has, like, dark brown hair in the books, but he changed it after the movie came out, after the cinematic adaptation of Nicole Kidman portraying Mrs. Coulter. And he, in seeing Nicole Kidman's portrayal and her casting, was like, of course Mrs. Coulter has blonde hair. And so I think in later publications of, or some versions of his dark materials, you'll find that actually Mrs. Coulter has, in the main trilogy blonde hair and so i think this is keeping in that 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 phil pullman was just so moved by that but i'd like to think that mrs coulter is the kind of woman who dyes her hair yeah because she's had a rough decade right like an experiment because she's just fancy also that well also though, she yeah. just like wants to dye her hair why not like you can just dye your hair girl she gets you a full set of gels every other week like that girl is on it she gets everything waxed like 
Yeah. Every three weeks, she is in that spa, spending a day, right, commanding her demonless, weird, crony slaves. Crazy bitch. Yeah, I think she's just someone who dyes her hair. Yeah, that too. She's a stylish woman. That we know of. I mean, I feel like I don't even know her. She's changed her hair in front of my very eyes. I mean, you know, people do that after that. That's usually significant, Stress. I guess, in books. But sometimes people just do it. Like I cut my hair after after Cora cut her hair in Legend of Cora. I was like, I'm gonna cut my hair. <laughs> I, that legitimately happened. Oh God, I I I I suddenly no- understand so much more. Things make so much more sense right now about you. Mrs. Coulter asks what Dr. Ralph was teaching Malcolm, which he responds to with the history of ideas. She's like, well, I think you found a very great teacher just for this. He feels very put off by her demon, her monkey, who sits behind her very still. Usually Asta would have flown over to greet a demon very warmly, but not this one. She asks Malcolm how he found Hannah, where he lived, and what he wants to be when he grows up. He gives her a vague version of... Hannah leaving her book behind and lying pretty smoothly, although the monkey did perk up, about living in a village called St. Ebes. She responds, hmm. he responds to her career question with, well, I was thinking of working on boats or the railway, and she responds with this bitch-ass, sickly, sarcastic, sweet remark of, oh, well, the history of ideas should be very helpful there. He retorts, telling her, interesting, I met a friend of yours the other day, Coulter. In the Scrivener's arms, he had a three-legged hyena demon. Yes, yeah, so we're seeing Malcolm being a little troll right yep. now, and maybe maybe using some interesting kind of espionage things, but this feels like a very Lyra-esque move on Malcolm's part, right? The want to poke and then lie in retaliation to Mrs. Coulter's condescension. And I think it's another example that displays Malcolm's, again, recklessness in youth, like that earlier lack of caution that he shows towards Alice. Yeah. And, I mean, Hannah told him at the door, please, 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 just be careful, kid. And first thing he does, he lets his emotions get the better of him. He's like, I think I will cause problems on purpose. <laughs> Mood. <sighs> that was a horrible shock for her. Malcolm could see it, Asta could see it, and Dr. Ralph and Jasper could see it too. But all that happened was that the golden monkey leaned forward and put both paws on Mrs. Coulter's shoulders and the faint pink left her cheek. This is classic lady and monkey, right? Like, Coulter and her monkey, classic them. Pretty much any time the monkey wants something in the books or is distraught, he almost always gives her away. Here is no exception. Like when he's anxiously leaning forward when they're about to open the spy fly case in Northern Lights, or when the monkey watches Lyra sleep in the bed, waiting to put Panna Lehman back to sleep if need be in the amber spyglass. Mm-hmm. This entire exchange is an argument to me against having demons, <laughs> to be honest. Like, I think there are a lot of times where, like, of course, it's so cool to have a demon, to have, like, a best friend that is an animal, and that is you, and they seem very cool and useful in many ways, but they also completely just snitch on your emotions. Seems inconvenient for that. Yeah, absolutely. And it depends on the demon, too. Like, what if you get stuck with, like, yeah. someone that's way too outgoing and really snitches on you all mm. the time and won't shut their mouth? You. Or you could have a bug. If you had a bug, it's harder to tell. Mm, man, maybe I need a bug. Yeah, we need a butterfly or something. 
well, Mrs. Coulter was like, I don't know any such person. And he asked if he should tell him hello then when he next sees him and or any news of Mrs. Coulter. And she says he shouldn't speak to that man at all. And he also shouldn't listen to such nonsense. Asta and Hannah just watch wide-eyed and in shock the entire time, but snap out of it, asking if Mrs. Coulter needs anything else or if she was leaving. Malcolm and the monkey have a steering match during this time. Malcolm thinks that the monkey, if it had a name, would be named Malice. Ha 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 ha. Get it? It's the thing. He said the the thing. thing. He said the thing. It's now canonized. Ha ha ha. Half canonized. (laughs) It's it's, it's Malcolm's head cannon. (laughs) Marisa thanks Dr. Ralph and says a very impersonal goodbye, Malcolm, to Malcolm, and leaves. Immediately, Hannah's like, what the fuck did you do that for? And Malcolm's like, I wanted to see how she responded. And it definitely shook her. Hannah's like, she came here to ask about Lyra, and she seemed to think I had some connection to the child. Which is true, I guess, through you, Malcolm. And then the gears start turning. Hannah realizes Coulter must have somehow learned this through an alethiometer because of the oddness and the distance of all the facts that Coulter had, and she starts making tea, super distracted by her thoughts, piecing it together. She explains Coulter feigned interest in the Oxford alethiometer group, and then moved on to discussing a child that's being kept out of the city. Hannah, of course, had told her nothing, but she does want to tell Malcolm something. She immediately blurts out that she's left the alethiometer group for a new job with Oakley Street once he is sworn to secrecy, and that she feels as if Coulter knew she had one hidden in her home. I will say, though, I feel like Mrs. Coulter is doing a bad job researching, because as we've established in the earlier chapters, and as, like, Malcolm's mom sort of points out, like, literally everyone in this town knows that there's a baby at the Priory. I mean, we know how she feels about doing PR jobs with the poor people, though. You know, it's kind of hard. Yeah. She'd have to actually talk to poor people to find out. (sighs) Like in the Northern Lights with the kids when she's got them writing the letters and she's just gritting her teeth like, don't breathe near me, orphan. (sighs) Pretty much. So, I mean, I'm just like, she couldn't have been trying that hard. (laughs) (laughs) I really feel that way. Hannah still doesn't know if she thinks that Malcolm should have said anything about Gerard Bonvie to Mrs. Coulter. And he's like, we needed to know if she knew about him. And then he tells her about the Priory window. How someone left it open, and they both start to speculate if it was on purpose. She once more swears him to secrecy about her new job, and he starts asking her more questions. She tells him they've asked her to ask the alethiometer about Lyra and also about dust. He promises he won't ask any more intrusive questions, and they move on to choose his books before being sent home. The next day, her safe's installed, the alethiometer is home sweet home, George, Papa Dimitri, and Hannah chat, and she asks him, hey, what was up with that really awkward silence at the end of the meeting the other day? Well, it turns out there's an agent they want to turn to the other side, and they were hoping to find blackmail on him. He was rumored to have an unhealthy interest in young boys. Hannah flips her shit. She is not having it. She's like, uh, no, uh, no, no, no. How dare you, first of all. George is like, he's not going to be in real harm. And she's like, oh, it's just a fake guy with a fake unhealthy interest in young boys? Then okay. She says she would rather return the alethiometer that she can't believe he would try to trick her by telling her after she already committed. He tells her to calm down and come talk to him when she's become calmer. The chapter ends with... No, 
Of course she'd do anything to keep Malcolm safe from that. And she saw Lord Nugent in a new light, too. Under that patrician charm and friendliness, he was ruthless. All she could do was ask the alethiometer about it, and make what sense she could out of the swings and pauses of the silvery needle. As ever, the deeper she went, the more questions she saw. That evening, the rain started in earnest. Yes, as you mentioned earlier, Saved by the Bell, this doesn't come up again because everything floods and Malcolm's whole course of life is changed because he ends up having Lyra. Lyra secures him and Alice in many, many ways. She is the golden ticket. Hannah here is kind of like a, a late stage Coulter or the anti-Coulter, right? That that she's sticking up uh, against against this agency that wants to use this boy for greed and for bad. And we don't have to discuss how real life this is, but this is a real life thing that happens in a lot of secret service agencies, like they said, that are very comfortable with what they do and do not feel guilt about what they do yeah. and are letters of the alphabet. Uh, this is absolutely how blackmail is used. This is a kind of an odd... I get it. it it's supposed to build up Nugent, but it is an odd one-offer. It never comes back. Not at all. Uh, maybe it drives Malcolm in his career to understand how these systems of power abuse children and use children as pawns in their schemes, but I'm not sure. It just never comes back. I wonder if it's something like Pullman was going to address and then dropped. Yeah. I don't know. I guess the flood um, drowned it all. Yeah, I think that that's mostly it. He's like, whatever, that's done with now. Um, but yeah, it, it's... It's pretty shitty, every, everything that's happened. And it, it's pretty shitty that he tells her to calm down, like, as though she's being... There's there's an element of it that feels kind of gendered, like, telling mm -hmm. women, you need to calm down, you're being too emotional. It's like, no, Lord Nugent, you're fucked up. You're trafficking children to complete your yeah. little blackmail scheme to turn an agent. And, and that's the thing, is, like, if you traffic one child, then that opens the floodgate doors, and this isn't the first one that's been trafficked for them to fulfill their needs. Right. Or, or like, using him, you know? And it's interesting, because I kind of also, you, you were talking about Hannah as this, like, anti-culture or something, mm -hmm. and there's part of me that kind of wonders, what happened in the time since this meeting, that when Lyra first meets Mrs. Coulter... Hannah Ralph is there alongside her. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of this that, and we can talk about this more in discussion that he's had ideas for from the very beginning. And there's also stuff that kind of is like, there's a lot of retconning, right? That happens left and right. But this sure. does feel a, a little bit like late stage Coulter. Like something about this younger driven Coulter is still reminiscent of the Coulter mm -hmm. we meet in, Amber Spyglass in the end of Subtle Knife in her search for Lyra. And something about Hannah yeah. standing up for Malcolm here against this is the, the nega version of Coulter standing up against the bomb for Lyra and trying to keep her safe, mm -hmm. right? Like it is that kind yeah. of nega version of these people that have kind of trusted the system and trusted it to support them. And as the system has ruined their life, they finally lash back. But I th also, like, I think it's different because Hannah would do that for any child Anytime. i think yeah. right it is whereas different. mrs culture yes, was like <laughs> yeah because i'm like mrs culture's like she'll do that for lyra but she's like all oh, those other kids fuck them fuck those kids and the other problem there is also she's like 
still not sure if she's really doing it for Lyra or if it's like she's 50-50. She's like, am I doing it for Lyra? I think so, but I also could be doing it to find out what her fucking prophecy is and exploit that. Haha. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah. But when she finally dies, at least, you know, there's no there's no contest there, but that's for sure. But yeah, I I was just wondering, like, is there something like Hannah, Ralph, despite kind of fearing Mrs. Coulter and, and being very wary of her, there's a part of me that wonders, does Hannah, like, respect Mrs. Coulter as a colleague on some level, right? Yeah. And that's why they're both there at Jordan College together. And it feels like they're presented together, you know? Yeah, that is interesting. And, and we learn, like, there aren't, it's not unheard of that there's female scholars, obviously, because they exist. We're literally talking about them. But, like, I do think it's interesting they're presented together uh, as you know, I mean, I've done comedy shows and podcasts and whatever and had to, you know, be professional of people I didn't really love or whatever. But it's interesting that it's like, oh, here's the two smart girls in the room. We're going to pair them up. Even though their values yeah. and morals probably don't align whatsoever, they just happen to get like a degree. But they didn't have to both like be there at the same time to, to approach Lyra. Right. So that's what I don't get. Or I think that I guess Hannah Rolf is there to show to an extent how lyra grows from the beginning to the end yeah and i also think that like he didn't probably get his full want for hannah into the main story he probably had ideas to put her mm. in other ways or use her in other ways that just never came back because obviously he has a lot of i mean once you hit the amber spyglass it's fucking over okay <laughs> there's so many new yeah. little characters and asriel's council and the magisterium Literally. council and then yeah exactly and the, the chevalier the it's yep cialis it's it's too much there's so many characters and i don't mean that in a negative way because i think it's a perfect amount of characters yeah. personally but uh, Hannah Ralph, like, there just wasn't a chance to come back to her from, you know, beginning, then end. But there's no chance in the middle. So I am glad. This is the revisit. This is the revisit. You know, we're revisiting yeah, her now it. and learning why she's so important. But there are things that are a little bit screaming retcon that I'm like, I really wish this was worked into the main story. And we could talk about it in a second in our dustiest discussion, which is where we spoil the hell out of most of the secret commonwealth up to where Eliana has read. So if you have not read The Secret Commonwealth, this is it until next month. We will chat with you next month for episode six. We have lots of fun in store as the flood rises. Tune out, don't get spoiled, and we'll talk to you soon. So about a dusty discussion where we spoil the hell out of The Secret Commonwealth and to return to what we were saying the scene in the Secret Commonwealth where all of a sudden everybody just like info dumps on Lyra and Alice is like, I got raped by Gerard. And everyone's like, yeah, they saved your life. Malcolm really saved your life. Malcolm's the best. Like that whole scene is probably the most retcon scene of the whole series to me. It's just so in, unnatural. In yeah, it was it, it was weird. It's it's fine, but it was so like here's a bunch of information that I'm writing into my book. Yeah, that's part of that's part of what feels retcon, but also, I think what felt most retcon to me, and I think that's significant. It shows like a strange, I don't know, so much of like look at what a great guy Malcolm is. Yep. Yeah, throughout the second book, and like he is great, right? Like in this first book, we didn't need like more of that hammered home. It, it feels heavy handed in the second book, but. Yeah. For me, and I know this is small and it's a strange gripe, what feels retconned is I'm like, it's also kind of very rude of Lyra. I'm like, girl, 
Alice Lonsdale was 26 years old, and you were just like, that woman's so old, and I'm like, you are so rude. Yeah. Alice Lonsdale is such a young woman. Um, but I, I, I think that's a retcon where he re-envisioned her later, right, mm-hmm. as, as being younger younger and a part because of he wanted to incorporate her i will yeah. say something i noticed today on my read is and i didn't bring this up during the episode but when you mentioned the man with the lemur demon who was overtly a little extra creepy towards lyra and trying to be overly friendly from the northern lights uh he's like trying to get her drunk you know what she tells him her name is yeah, Alice. I noticed that. Alice, yep, she I tells him it's that. Alice. So uh, I, it's probably just a coincidence, but I wonder if there's something there. You know, if if he did at least plan for her to be Alice Lonsdale this entire time. That's interesting. I think he might have, but I also think that it's, I think he might have, but I also don't think Lyra knew her name was no, Alice. No, I don't either. Like, I don't, and I think that's said in the secret comment belt that she's yeah. like, I don't know Mrs. Lonsdale had her name. first name. <laughs> yeah. And that's the problem. Like, it does take a certain suspension of disbelief for some of the stuff in the Secret Commonwealth. And some of the stuff is, like, mind-blowing good, where you're like, holy shit, I can't yeah. believe you just came up with this, Philip Pullman. But then, at the same exact time, some of it has me just going, like, eh. Like, some of the stuff with Pan is, like, heartbreaking and tear-jerking. Oh, God, right? yeah. I was, like, in my blanket crying. I was like, I can't believe Eliana made me read this shit. Yeah. But there's other things that I'm just like, I don't know. And one of those is like, so I do I do think this is an interesting foreshadowing. Uh, and I think it's something that comes out even before The Secret Commonwealth because the Lyra's Oxford novella comes out only a few years mm-hmm. after the main trilogy and even prior to the publication of The Book of Dust. Or, uh, the, prior to the publication of La Belle Sauvage. Malcolm's teaching Lyra to say her name, right? He's trying to teach her these syllables, and he's doing a pretty fucking bad job of it, <laughs> turns out. But I think this is foreshadowing, foreshadowing of how later on in her teenage years, Malcolm does uh, act as her teacher for a small bit of time, right? And just as he fails to teach her how to speak, turns out he's he's not a very good teacher towards her, and they're like, this isn't working. That's a really good catch, and I didn't understand where that teaching moment was. Like, I I knew there was a reason. That's a really good catch. It has to be foreshadowing of the teaching later. It's really funny, because she's defiant even as an infant. Yeah, she's just like, "Mm, I don't want to learn from you. (laughs) Nope. Yeah, uh, that's a good one. I didn't even think about that, huh? Uh, yeah, even the toy and everything. She rejects his toy right earlier, and they didn't want to let her keep it because she would have eaten it anyways. But anyways, interesting. Yes. <sighs> you know, the other thing that was very dusty in this that I want to bring back up is Malcolm's aura. Uh, he says to Asta, whatever causes the northern lights also likely causes his aura. And he's thrilled of the idea of his brain being connected to the northern lights. This feels really big, like a very small sentence with a very big idea, especially considering the secret commonwealth. Like, Malcolm, I think he's going to be able to access this aura. Straight up blue skidoo, weekend to jump into it or something and portal somewhere. I don't know. I spent this whole book thinking it was going to be important <laughs> and it never became important. It wasn't the climax. It didn't help him save the day. It just appeared and did nothing. So I'm expecting there will be payoff because it also didn't really... I mean, it came up in the Secret Commonwealth, but it sure didn't do anything. 
I think the payoff's going to be yeah. in the last book of Dust. And I think there has to be some sort of connection to this kind of a different way of reading the alethiometer, as we've discussed, and how there's some weird combo of uh, rose oil. Is rose oil going to be involved? We don't know. Uh, I'm wondering even if Malcolm's going to like put rose oil in his eye and make that into some mm. sort of portal between worlds or open a window with his eye. Will style, right? Will with subtle knife, but him with his eyeball aura. Especially given the yeah. Raylo scene, right? The Lyra Olivier scene. Will, will Lyra be able to like alethiomate or see through Malcolm's brain aura or something? I mean, the the Northern Lights had a city in them in the original trilogy, so now they're in Malcolm's eyes and brain. It has to mean something. Yeah, I don't like that. That's too intimate. I know it's too intimate, but <laughs> if he dies, it's okay. I, I... <laughs> yeah, that's really mean, and I really hate that because I, really, I know I don't want it's hard to feel to that book. way about Malcolm because this yeah. is like he's a sweet little boy in this book and he is a good boy he's a very good boy but Malcolm does not continue to be a good boy because Pullman does not continue to be a good man in writing him okay <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah I didn't realize um I'm not far enough to know so I still had hope I was like yeah the halo is gonna fucking mean something oh, and it's sorry. fine it's fine to know that it doesn't, but it's just so fascinating to me that, like, when he gets older, right, there's that scene, the first scene where we see the aura come back for him in, in the secret commonwealth, and everyone's just like, oh, he's just doing that thing, and everyone just lets him, like, sit there quietly, and they just all, like, chill and are fine and just, like, live around it and just let him go through the whole thing for, like, a half hour. Like, he never found anything to further it. He never got any more information. Nothing developed in the 10, 20 years. But it's just like, no one does anything about it, right? They're just sitting around and letting it happen. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess that's all I have for the yeah. Dusty discussion. Uh, I, I am very curious about his eyeball aura. I really am. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I, I think the idea of the rose oil and putting it in his eyes is interesting because we are introduced to that concept. I think that it has to be connected, right? It's the rarest substance. We're finding it's on all these magisterium people like Charles Latrum and Marisa has roses and rose soap and rose everything. I, I mean, it, it has to be yeah. used and there has to be a reason why it's so rare. And the idea of like oils and anointment oils being used and possibly even being used for like shaman type purposes is also introduced in the book. And then you think about the seed pods. From the Mulefa. Yeah. Hmm. I want the seed pods to mean something. Well, I mean. But I guess, but, you but know, when I think about it, Eliana. Mary brought the seed pods yes. with her. And guess Lyra who lives didn't. with Mary, though? Yeah, but it's interesting that Lyra didn't bring any. And there were none brought into Lyra's world. But she was just given the vial of the rose oil, at least. Yeah, but, but Eliana, I think it would have been cool if there were seed pods in both. But Eliana, if she has rose oil... And Will has seed pods. Yeah. I'm just saying. I'm just saying for the for the biological diversity, but maybe it would have been bad for... Maybe it's bad to just randomly bring plants from other dimensions. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, you it can't do be. that at, like, borders. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, dude, you're not supposed to do that in our own world. So I'm like, maybe that was a bad idea. Like, what if it's an invasive know. fucking species? <laughs> it's not like it grow your be. own mulefa, okay, Aliana? 
Yeah. And even then, you know, we talked about starlings and sparrows once, and like, turns out those cute ass birds. A menace. <laughs> a menace to society. A menace. In North America. <sighs> well. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of La Belle Sauvage. That was our dustiest discussion, our discussion, so to speak, since there is no dustiest. This is the most dusty. Thanks for listening. We will be back next month with episode six, which will cover several chapters from La Belle Sauvage. We'll reread them with you and talk about them then. Yes. But until then, perhaps you have reactions to this episode. Or something else feel free to shoot us a tweet on social media or or follow us on social media you can find us at girls gone canon c-a-n-o-n on twitter or maybe you have something else to say and you can shoot us an email at girls gone canon at gmail.com yeah and if you're not already subscribed to us on the platform that you listen to podcasts to make sure you hit subscribe leave us a review whatever you like eliana loves reading reviews it's like her whole thing you can find us on spotify Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Acast, Amazon, iHeartRadio, you name it, we're there. And, of course, we do have a Patreon, and we have special episodes for patrons $5 and up. This month is going to be an episode about A Song of Ice and Fire, the other series that we cover. But next month, as we switch off every month, is going to be a His Dark Materials related episode yes we'll have more about that very soon yes and we also of course for our patrons ten dollars and up thunder tier and above have a discord where you can continue to talk about his dark materials yes there is a lot of his dark material talk and recently on our discord we have actually split up the segment so that there is a spoiler section for his dark materials and a oh. non-spoilers. So come check it out. Sign up over at patreon.com slash girls gone canon. Again, in the Thunder tier, $10 and above, you get access to a private patron-only Discord. Come hang out with us. It's fun. And also, uh, once a month, we do a sort of brunch slash happy hour virtually. And, you know, when this episode comes out, our brunch slash happy hour for January will, in fact, be tomorrow, Saturday, January 30th. Yes. So so if you have time, you're so totally still welcome. Please show up. We don't care whenever you want. Two to four Eastern time. But if not, maybe we'll see you next month for February's brunch and happy hour. Yes. Well, thank you again, everyone, for coming and listening to The Book of Dust, La Belle Sauvage, chapters 12 through 14. I have been one of your hosts, Eliana. I have been another one of your hosts, Chloe. And goodbye. Oh man, it's gonna flood soon. It's gonna flood. I'm gonna get wet. Oh my god. Hannah Ralph's got her vibrator. Father Tam just out there spraying champagne on everyone's ass. Oh my god. <laughs> Is that sacrilegious? I don't know. Goodbye. I don't know.